Hey, Luis. What's up, Tim? In the Watchmen comics, the U.S. government decides to call their radioactive superhero Dr. Manhattan in order to scare the Soviet Union into submission. Personally, I don't think that doctors are all that scary of a profession. If they really wanted to frighten their enemies, they should have been called Mr. Manhattan Esquire. Everybody hates lawyers. Tim, I think you're being super critical. Welcome to another episode of the Super Critical Podcast, where we delve into the fun and oftentimes nonsensical way pop culture portrays nuclear weapons. My name is Tim Westmeyer, someone who studies nuclear weapons and works on nuclear security for a living. We are excited today to talk about the new plot of Watchmen. And unfortunately, Gabe is uh, under the weather and is unable to join us. I think he's off on Mars trying to build some kind of a pharmaceutical plant that can get him the, the pills that he needs uh, to get better. Fortunately, we are joined uh, by my friend Luis Navarro, who we met on working for a campaign back in the day. And almost nine years ago, Luis, old uh, podcast host Joel, and I went to see Watchmen in Washington, D.C. Because I didn't know anything about this. Luis kind of insisted that it was worth our time. And I'm glad he did because the movie was was pretty good. But it got me into the comic book and I really enjoyed that story. So, Luis, thanks so much for coming on today. My pleasure. So, Watchmen is a story about what would have happened if you put masked superheroes into Cold War politics. Particularly if one of them is not just Batman who doesn't have any superpowers, but is a, a walking nuclear weapon named Dr. Manhattan. It's about human nature and what it takes to keep us from blowing each other up with world-ending weapons. So we're going to be talking mostly about the Watchmen comic book, uh, which came out from 1986 to 1987. I think it's like 12 issues. You can buy it now as a big co compilation graphic novel. It's also a new comic book, relatively new from 2012, called Before Watchmen, which is a little bit unnecessary for the whole story, but it's like a prequel to explain what happens. There's currently a comic book series called Doomsday Clock, which just started last winter, last uh, fall. So that's ongoing. Most people know the movie, which I think is a pretty easy way of getting into the story if you don't have access to the comics. Go check it out. It's called Watchmen. came out in 2009. That's the thing that we're talking about here. Uh, Luis, do you remember your the time we went to go see that movie? Yeah, I mean, it, you know, number one, I, I always enjoy when I get to see films like that where people have an appreciation for the genre. Secondly, the Uptown is a theater that I remember very fondly as a kid. And third, you know, one of the things that really resonated with me about Watchmen is that, you know, not only was the Cold War context, but sort of the reimagining of a superhero archetype. So, you know, Dr. Manhattan, from my perspective, is a stand-in for Superman. The comedian is a uh, alternative universe version of Captain America, mm -hmm. Night Owl, Batman. You know, um, Rorschach is probably the most unique, although you could say that he's uh, similar to the Punisher uh, character right. in Marvel Comics. So it's that sort of back and forth and trying to imagine these archetypical characters in a Cold War setting that is really what uh, speaks to me about the film. I didn't really know this until I started doing research for this episode, and I had read the comic book after we saw the movie. But I guess wherever Ellen Moore was working, mm -hmm. Ellen Moore is the writer for this uh, interesting character. 
uh, in his own right. Um, he's, yeah, I think it was DC Comics because it was around the time that he did the iconic uh, Joker. Oh, the Killing Joke. The Killing Joke. Yeah. yeah, so he's done Killing Joke. He's done a number of things, people, that maybe, even if they're not into comics, they've heard about. V for Vendetta, he wrote that. League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. He had a great run on Swamp Thing. And I just read his story that he did, which was called Whatever Happened to the Man of Tomorrow, uh, which is about Superman's death and the end of the golden age of Superman. So he's he's clearly, he knows what he's talking about. And I guess when he was working at DC, they bought a bunch of old characters called the Charlton comic book characters. And he wanted to take those characters and put them into a gritty Cold War scenario. And I guess DC said, uh, we know what you want to do with these characters. We don't want to ruin them um, just like that. So kind of him and his partner, the illustrator, Dave Gibbons, said, fine, we're just going to essentially crib these characters and create our own story. So I think that's a cool way of, of approaching that. And the movie is interesting because it was stuck in development hell for the longest time. It was considered to be unfilmable, and it passed around between Fox and Warner Brothers, and it wasn't really until, you know, the mid-2000s that they finally have a chance and an opportunity and a director, Zack Schneider, who people who listen to this podcast will know, he did Batman vs. Superman, which is another has a lot of nuclear themes into it, movies like 300, uh, sucker Punch, and this movie was polarizing. I'm trying to remember when we watched it. I think we generally liked it, but people, some people really hate it. Uh, critics give it a 64% on Rotten Tomatoes, but the audience gives it 71. It's a good idea, unevenly and uh, executed. Mm -hmm. And I, I see that in a lot of Zack Snyder's work. You know, I feel the same way with regards to the Batman versus Superman notion. There were a lot of good elements in it. Taken as a whole, I think the film was, you know, didn't meet expectations. And and Watchmen, I think the, the reason what sets it apart is this sort of unique one-off aspect of the narrative because they're not familiar characters as part of the canon that most even uh, minimally interested uh, comic book genre folks would be familiar with. I almost very similar to my experience with Guardians of the Galaxy. Yeah. Like, I consider myself well-versed in the comic book world, but I didn't know anything about Guardians of the Galaxy. I didn't really know anything about Watchmen, so maybe that makes me a poor comic book follower, but my parents weren't letting me buy this comic when I was, you know, 9, 10, 11 years old. Yeah, and in fairness, uh, you know, as someone who collected uh, some of the early editions of the Guardians of the Galaxy, the, hmm. the, the what you see in the film and where the comic may be today is dramatically different from what it was when, hmm. when I got introduced to it further ago than I would care to share. <laughs> do, you, do you enjoy the, the path that it's gone on now? Yeah, I mean, you know, and I think that in, in part that is simply a function of the fact that uh, I feel like the Marvel Universe the stable of scriptwriters have just been consistently stronger, both in capturing the undertones of Marvel comic lore hmm. and embedding those into in, into the storylines. And you know, for me as someone who loved Marvel comics far more than DC, the whole point was to make a universe of more relatable characters in terms of their personal lives versus you know, the dichotomy of their, their larger superhero context. And, you know, I, I think a lot of that is, it falls into this. Right now, DC and Watchmen have crossover story in this doomsday scenario. Like, even though Watchmen has its own contained story, which you can say has a beginning, middle, and ending, it's done. You don't need to read the prequel comic or anything to understand that. Dr. Manhattan, this, this character who is essentially has an ability to do anything that he wants uh, because of his ability to manipulate matter, I guess he created in a couple of years ago. DC had this this crisis or post crisis storyline where they reset everything, 
and Dr. Manhattan was responsible for creating that. And then in this new Doomsday Clock series, Watchmen and DC, there's like multiverse type stuff where those characters from Watchmen are going into the DC world, interacting with Batman, the Joker. Even though Watchmen came out such a long time ago, in the movie almost 10 years ago, it still seems to have quite a continuing presence. And and again, this sort of speaks to the sort of larger narrative within the two comic world book or two primary comic book universes, because Marvel had their own reset uh, several years earlier. House of M, mm. Infinity Wars. These were all efforts to sort of provide a clearer, more coherent narrative and storyline because they had created so many, so many stories, yeah, and many of them running. Uh, not in uh, in a time sequential fashion uh, that they needed to find a way to start over. Hmm. Well, looking back to when Watchmen came out, I think it's important to have a quick discussion about what the context of when this comic book series came out, because much like how the Marvel universe is very complicated, but it really it makes more sense if you know the context of when these stories are written, because a lot of these comics are like best science fiction that's supposed to be a mirror, a funhouse mirror back at us in our own world and explore certain things, so did Watchmen. So in 1986, when Watchmen came out, President Reagan was president for, for a number of years, about in the middle of his term. The war in Afghanistan was raging, but near its end, but we didn't know that at the time. The Soviet Union had supported a communist coup in Afghanistan and, and battling insurgents that were being supported by the United States, Pakistan, UK, Saudi Arabia, and others. And there was a major Soviet offensive campaign over the last five years, which included some fighting near Pakistan. So we were very concerned, you know, myself as a, I was barely a child, there was their concern that this could escalate into something more than just a regional conflict, that this could be a spark that would could set off nuclear war, similar to the concerns we had either during the Berlin crisis or Cuban Missile Crisis. And it really didn't end until Gorbachev came into power and decided to focus more on domestic issues as opposed to the, the war in Afghanistan. It's a very simplistic way of looking at it, but that was a pretty scary time. And in 1986, uh, nuclear weapons certainly could have provided an end game to this story, which would have been pretty bad. The Russians had 45,000 warheads that they could use. The United States had 24,000. And overall, the world had about 70,000. So it was a, a time where that was near the peak, the numbers that we had. And it wasn't until a little bit later did we start to draw down. So I think that's kind of the context, I would say, that when this comic book was released, people were thinking about these issues. I, mean, I would add a sort of a layer to that is that I don't know when Alan Moore really sort of began to think about the sketching of the outline of the of this story. Mm -hmm. In Reagan's first term between 1981 and 1985, I mean, you literally had situations. There was a guy named T.K. Jones, for example, who had been uh, a nominee for Assistant Secretary of Defense. And in his confirmation hearing, he had said that any American could survive a nuclear attack if they dug a hole three feet deep and placed a door over it. Hmm. I, you know, I mean, uh, yeah. uh, just an outrageous uh, thing to be said. And then you had situations like uh, Reagan saying into a hot mic, I want to say this is either 1984 or 1985, yeah, yeah. where he says, you know, we will begin bombing uh, the Soviet Union in, in 20 seconds. Or something like that. Yeah. yeah, and so, you know, I mean, I think it was as much about the sort of cavalier notion in that first term where... You know, people were talking about the benefits of a first strike capability and, you know, the ability to hide our ballistic uh, weapons via rail tracks so that they could be moved around the greater uh, southwest. Oh, yeah, and, that's well, the Russians did that. That was their stuff. Right. Was on. And, and, and then, you know, the, the idea of Star Wars defense. Right. So uh -huh. all of these things were happening in that first term of Reagan. And I think 
I would assume that that had at least as much, if not more, relevance to how Moore was putting this in as anything that was happening in Afghanistan. Yeah, I would agree with that. He certainly is coming across as someone who sees history of the United States after World War II being driven by its ability to use nuclear weapons and to use its superpower strength, sometimes for good, other times not so great. And he questions the the very idea of nuclear weapons are our watchmen, their ability to maintain the United States' role as a police power in the world. And is that necessarily a good thing? What what are the consequences when we have that kind of ability? And what will it take to deal with that in a responsible way? The Soviet Union continued its recent series of military exercises conducting a bomb test today in the Bering Sea, just 1,500 miles off the southern coast of Alaska. President Richard Nixon issued this warning to the Soviets. The United States does not start fights. Let it be clear, we maintain our strength in order to maintain peace, though any adversary should ask themselves, do the consequences of attacking America outweigh the potential benefits? So let's get through, because the story of the story is, is good to, to outline a little bit of this. And the comic book uh, and the movie, until the end, are fairly close. I think that's one thing you can say about Zack Schneider is maybe he doesn't perform execution-wise certain things that well, but the story you know, plot points are pretty similar. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about how they diverge, but as usual, spoiler warning, if you haven't read any of these things or haven't watched this movie, take some time, watch it. I know I got it on Amazon streaming, um, so it's available for people to watch pretty quickly. The comic book is anywhere you buy comic books. There'll be a Watchmen comic out there. Uh, so the story starts pretty simply. A comedian falls out of a window and dies. And there is an investigation about who this person is that died. And we, we only know at first that this is a guy named Eddie Blake. Eddie falls out of this window. We don't know who he is, but there's this other character. Rorschach is his name. I think this is a pretty iconic looking dude. He's has a trench coat and he's wearing a, a mask that makes it look like a Rorschach inkblot test. One of the things I loved about this story is... The characters and, and what they wear and their, their costumes are so good at reflecting their character traits. So Rorschach is a guy who sees everything as black or white. No gray. It's like an inkblot test. There's black and then there's white. And that's his way of looking at crime and people's responsibility and, and things like that. He sees someone that wants to try to figure out why did this guy die? Because he seems to have some sort of a connection with him in the past. In this world here, it's a lot like our world, but there's also people who dress up like superheroes and go around fighting crime. Because it kind of started, and this is, I think it's cool, it started in the 1900s, these, this group called the Minutemen. They got famous and started fighting crimes, and they were essentially, I think, cops to start. It's kind of an interesting take on that, as opposed to it being more like people who were exposed to radiation or someone who had an incredible Batman's parents being killed, and it drives him to do this. These people just kind of got together, and for most of them, it was just a, it was a side hobby. In the movie, as I recall, the way the setup is, is that they're, they're originally trying to take on the gangland uh, gangsters of the Prohibition era. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, they are former cops, or currently police officers. But then they transitioned to World War II because at one point the original Night Owl makes a reference to uh, using, a, I think, a right hook against Captain Axis. <laughs> so, you know, there, there's this premise that, you know, around the world there are, you know, uh, people who are donning these alternative egos and, and mass disguises on behalf of, you know, either a social ill or some sort of national uh, threat. They're doing what they think the system, the courts, can't do that regular police officers aren't able to do uh which eventually leads the cops to strike 
Uh, it's a little bit further on in the story, but cops strike because they realize these max mass superheroes are essentially taking their jobs. They don't no longer have any work to do, so they strike and there's riots and it leads ultimately to what's called the, the Senator Keene Act, where these superheroes are banned and they all have to go either into retirement, work for the government, or some of them don't really end up with that great of a life. Uh, one of the things that's fascinating about this compared to some other comic book stories is these original characters that we're introduced to, they're very, very much like pulp characters. Uh, there's like a character like Dollar Bill, who's just like a superhero with a mask and a cape, and he's got a big dollar bill sign. I think he was supposed to be a mascot for a bank. They say, go work with this Minuteman group, and you'll get good promotional work. And they all kind of get together, and they fight stuff. One guy's named Captain Metropolis, and they all don't have powers. They just, maybe they're very good at martial arts or something. But some of them don't really have a very happy ending. Dollar Bill's cape gets stuck in a revolving door during a bank robbery, and the, like, the bank robbers turn around and say, cool, I'm just going to shoot you, and then he dies that way. There's a bunch of characters that have meet very untimely deaths. Well, you know, what's again, what's interesting about this is that I feel that more both takes from and then later comic book lore builds upon. At several points in the Marvel Universe, once in the 70s and then in the more recent Civil War mm -hmm. context, there's this effort to try to register superheroes right. and make their identities known. And, you know, that happened uh, once in the 70s after the Watergate uh, is as a direct pro uh, fallout from the Watergate effort. At one point, Captain America uh, becomes a character called the Nomad. He decides that Captain America is no longer relevant in this world post-Vietnam, post-Watergate. Huh. And for about a, you know, seven to ten series issue series run, he becomes this character Nomad. And in fact, in that in that series... There's a scene where he goes to take on a group called uh, the Viper Squad, which is loosely based on the Symbionese Liberation Army. And he trips on his cape. He steps on it and lands head first on, on the ground. And then you have this, you know, going forward, uh, after Alan Moore and Watchmen, mm -hmm. you have a reference to the silliness of capes and crime fighting <laughs> yeah. in The Incredibles. There's yeah. this whole yeah. dialogue No capes, it. darling. Right. Exactly. So, you know, it's really interesting how, you know, Moore, I have to believe, was influenced by some of these actions that were happening over in Marvel in, in the years prior to his writing this. Mm -hmm. And and that's, again, sort of the thing that I find most compelling about this series is his constant reference to uh, iconic archetypes within uh, the comic book universe and freely taking from both DC and Marvel. He deconstructs these things. He creates flawed characters. And really forces you to to think about what this might be if it was real, you know, real in the sense of our world. Because really talked a little bit about the Minutemen people, but it wasn't. There were none of them had powers as we know them until Doctor Manhattan was created by an accident. And I'll get more into his origin in a little bit, but he's a he's a guy who's a scientist. He he was originally a watchmaker. His father was a watchmaker, and when the atomic bombings on Japan took place, his father said, "This is ridiculous. Why are we in this obsolete profession? People aren't going to need watches anymore. What we need is someone who knows nuclear science, and that's the kind of stuff that you're going to need to work focus on. The bombs are the future." So he throws his son's uh watchmaking kit away. And this, the kid goes, John, uh, goes on to various Ivy League schools, and he eventually starts to work for like a national weapons lab called Gilliflats. And he's there, and he accidentally gets stuck in this, I guess they call it the intrinsic field generator, where they try to separate things from their tangibility or gravity. Not, I'm not really clear what it was. He gets stuck in there because of some time lock. 
not really safe, but it's supposed to be a safety mechanism. He gets stuck in there. They think he's dead because he just evaporates. He just explodes. And a couple days later, he starts to reform himself using his knowledge gained from putting together watches after dissembling them. Worked out pretty well for his favor. We should all learn how to make watches in case this stuff happens to us. Yeah, and and again, I feel like so much of this, to a much greater extent within the Marvel Universe as compared to DC, Mm -hmm. these nuclear or nuclear-like radiation uh, origins, you know, the Fantastic Four, the Spider-Man, the Incredible Hulk. Uh, and there was at least an initially an effort by Marvel to superimpose their characters into real life events. So like in some of the early earliest issues of Iron Man, he's battling communist guerrillas in Southeast Asia. Hmm. You know, as the public and particularly the youth of America, you know, early on started, you know, developing some questions. Uh, Marvel decided that perhaps wedding their characters to uh, real life events in real time. Now they they go back constantly and start referencing contemporary events. They seem to understand that wedding their characters to real life situations may put them in political contexts that they cannot extricate themselves from. Moore takes the entirely opposite approach of saying that's the whole you know power of his narrative is Let's that get him in there. He's putting them in. So we see in the movie and in the comics a montage of superheroes being involved in real-life stories. So once Dr. Manhattan comes back and he ends up working for the government, he has this ability to point his hand or his mind at a tank and just dissemble it. Uh, He has the ability to transport himself from place to place. He can destroy incoming missiles. They refer to him as a walking nuclear deterrent. He has more powers than that, but he has the ability to do all these amazing things and Along with him and some of the other, these other superheroes, people like the comedian, who is essentially a gun for hire, a person who, uh, we'll get into his character traits in a second, but he's, you know, like a mercenary type person. You see these montages in the movie and in the comics in World War II, instead of the V-Day classic photo of uh, the sailor and his lady friend kissing in Times Square, it's one of these superheroes. I think it's Silhouette. She kisses the the nurse, and it's this juxtaposition of what we know. It turns out the comedian killed JFK. He was the person on the grassy knoll, and it was his cigar that was the puff of smoke. You see, when we land on the moon, Dr. Manhattan's already there, welcoming humanity to, to joining himself on the moon. You see, instead of Elvis shaking hands with President Nixon, it's the, I think it's the comedian or some one of the other people shaking hands. And Dr. Manhattan wins Vietnam. He wins the Vietnam War for President Nixon, which gives President Nixon this incredible amount of political capital. They get rid of term limits. Uh, I just saw on the news today that uh, China is going to remove the term limits on its presidency. So look forward to four, five, six, ten more uh, generations of of Xi Jinping's uh, out there. But this allows President Nixon to maintain his hold on power. Uh, So he suppresses Watergate with the help of the comedian. This is kind of the world that we're in. Superheroes have a role to play. Some of them have to be retired after um, the Keen Act got pl- take place, but we're still using the military and the government is still using superheroes like weapons of war, which makes uh, some people quite anxious. Yeah, in fact, there's a there's a very oblique reference by the comedian in the film where he talks about killing Woodward and Bernstein. Oh, uh, yeah. For by, you know, and clearly that's how he suppresses Watergate from ever happening. But the world we find the story with the main part of the story that takes place is, is you know, during this Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, there's a sense of uh, anxiety that nuclear war and conflict is right around the corner. And this is most, you know, in the movie, it's within two minutes of the film starting, you see the doomsday clock. And uh, Luis, I don't know how familiar 
you are with the Doomsday Clock. It's one of these things which we'll get into great detail. Yeah. It's kind of what inspired me to want to do Watchmen now as opposed to any other time because it was recently updated. The Doomsday Clock is this idea. It's by the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientist, which is a publication firm. They used to do a magazine. Now it's mostly online, but they still have, I think, an online journal. Uh, I published them a couple different times, talking about nuclear weapons in pop culture, uh, one on Star Wars, Game of Thrones, and virtual reality headsets. So look for that stuff there. But they're really known since 1947, I believe, for having this thing called the Doomsday Clock. And it's supposed to represent how close humanity is to the end of the world. And when it's at midnight, that's when things are over. Uh, and you continually update it, and the closer you get, the more danger there is. Or it represents our ability to handle conflicts and crises to be able to manage that. So in the movie, you see a bunch of guys in lab coats in front of this clock, and they move it to five minutes uh, to midnight. And I think later in the film, they even move it to four minutes. So it's a pretty precarious time. I, I think that in the movie, this is represented by like a John McLaughlin lookalike. It's actually supposed to be him. He, he yells out. As a result of the Soviet activity, the watchdog group of nuclear scientists moved the doomsday clock up to five minutes until midnight. Destruction by nuclear war. On a scale of zero to 10, zero meaning impossibility, 10 meaning complete metaphysical certitude, what are the chances the Russians will actually attack the United States? Pat Buchanan. Zero. The Soviets would never risk going to war when we have a walking nuclear deterrent on our side. You're referring, of course, to Dr. Manhattan. And then Eleanor Cliff, who is a real person, you actually see her in Independence Day as herself in another scene, another nuke movie. She's, she has the counterpoint. She says, uh, Dr. Manhattan hasn't stopped the Russians from stockpiling nuclear weapons. Russians are threatened by Dr. Manhattan. That's why they do all these tests and they have all these weapons. Once I believe Dr. Manhattan will protect us and he's our, our essentially our savior and we, we don't have to worry about our foreign policy decisions, we'll always will come out on top. And then you have another side who thinks maybe Dr. Manhattan is the reason why some of this stuff is happening. People are insecure about his ability. I think this is a good time maybe. We talked a little bit about this just quickly so that people have the context. Some of the different characters. So maybe I'll name one of the superheroes. You can kind of mention how you would uh, elevator pitch them to someone. So you have Night Owl. What's, what's Night Owl's thing? Night Owl is, you know, seems to be predicated on the notion of Batman. He has a cave. He is the scion of a wealthy family mm -hmm. this is the second night owl he has uh, enhanced uh, the the equipment that he utilizes flies around in a spacecraft called uh, archimedes that's what it is archimedes which he nicknames archie yeah that's who he is he's the you know he's the patrician who fights crime as part of his noblesse oblige to uh, benefiting so much from society and then he retires when they well the first one the, the first night owl is a cop he retires because he's gotten older and, you know, he's not as agile as he was. And that's when the number two, second night owl comes about, who's the son of a banker who, mm -hmm. you know, has access to all this capital. And he works a little bit with uh, Rorschach. I yeah. guess back in the day they were they were partners. And again, you know, the Rorschach character to me is just fascinating. You know, you, in uh, listening to your description of him earlier, what I couldn't get away from was that his outfit is sort of a miniaturized version of Dick Tracy's outfit. Huh. Right, he's got the trench coat on. He's got the very specific—I um, don't know what style of hat we call that—but um, it's not a fedora. But you know, it's it's a very iconic uh, hat style from the '40s and '50s. His costume's a little less yellow and bright. Right, yeah. it's not—it's not bright yellow. It's very dark beige. But you know, and then he has this ethos 
which he shares with the comedian of kind of the Punisher, right? They have Mm -hmm. set themselves up explicitly as vigilantes. They understand and they embrace this notion that they are beyond the law, not not really above it, but beyond Mm -hmm. it, and that they are going to meet threats on those terms devoid of any sense of um, necessity to, to, to adhere either to the law or to societal norms. And, and we learn that Rorschach kind of becomes the character that he is due to a pretty messed up childhood. He is both the subject of abuse continually throughout his life at time. You know, Rorschach is easily, I think, the sort of ironically for his somewhat amoral, expressly vigilante uh, uh, ethos, is really sort of the heart of the Watchman story. Right. I mean, he's the guy who says the ends will justify the means. So if I need to solve a crime, if someone was was wronged, I can do whatever it takes to get that resolved, including breaking bones, hacking down dogs, doing whatever he needs to do. And, and he essentially has stripped himself away from his original persona, his, his origin story, his Walter Kovacs. He's no longer Walter Kovacs. He's he's Rorschach, and if he doesn't have his mask on, he's he's not happy about it. But like the comedian, he has an issue with scope. Right, how far and it can that, go. You know, like mass murder is not a sufficient uh, rationale to end the potential of greater mass murder. And so good transition to the comedian. The comedian, you when you think of the comedian, you probably think of someone who's like who cracks jokes and wise all the time, and he's a pretty happy guy. Uh, not so much. I mean, he wears a little pin, this iconic pin from the Watchmen, which is like a happy face, uh, yellow happy face, like an emoji, essentially. And he wears this pin, but his whole thing is is that life is a joke. That the idea that we that there are bounds to human nature, that humans are savage, and he recognizes that the idea you can cap that, that's the joke. And he plays he plays off of that. And you're right, scope of killing, but you also see him multiple times. He sh- in Viet- in the Vietnam War he shoots a woman who he uh, impregnated in a you know a Vietnamese woman and she tries to get him to take care of the child he says no I'm leaving uh, he just shoots her after she attacks him you see him burning down children with napalm in uh, flamethrowers doesn't seem to care all that much I mean he goes after Woodward and Bernstein but you know there's other things about that character but he seems to be the point is to a certain degree the joke is is that we can be controlled. And that the you that there are these crime fighters that are going out fighting crime, none of this matters because he sees the world. Um, I think as maybe Doctor Manhattan would, which is there are these larger conflicts, nuclear war being one of them. He's playing a role, but he's not under any assumption that he can do anything good. Yeah, I, I, the comedian fascinates me because I really see him as the antithesis of Captain America. If Captain America is the living embodiment of the idea mm. of what America is. The comedian is the dark underbelly, uh, you know, which is the joke as to how the world or some elements of the world perceive us to be. That we are perhaps not perceived as being as honorable. Right, right. We are, you know, self-interested, nakedly self-serving, more than willing to use capital force as a means of exercising our will. And so, you know, I see these two characters as really... Uh, the, the the sort of mirror images of each other or, or alternative universe images of each other. Speaking of someone else that also has a pretty fascinating costume, uh, the character of Ozymandias. He is like a real name. I can never pronounce his last name. Adrian Vietch, Viet, 
call him, we'll call him Ozymandias or or um, or Adrian. He's like Iron Man. I would say he's he's like uh, the guy. He he has less morals than Tony Stark and more arrogance, if you can imagine. And no sense of humor. No sense of humor. <laughs> he's the world's smartest man. He, he's got this incredible athletic and ability to jump around, and he can dodge bullets. He's so fast and good. He's part of this this second wave of superheroes that comes about, and he wears a costume, uh, models his entire personality off of Alexander the Great, wanting to to conquer the world and look at the world in a certain way, but that is uh, achieved through sheer intellect. And he's incredibly wealthy. Like if you imagine. You know, Batman's wealth times Lex Luthor's wealth. I think you get pretty close to Ozymandias' abilities. And he, after all the superheroes were forced to retire, he reveals his identity to the world. Hi, I'm Ozymandias. Would you like to buy an action figure of Ozymandias? Which is one of the funniest things is he's so good at he's he's smart, so he can interpret the stock market. He can invest when things need to go the right way. One of the things that ties all these characters together, including Silk Spectre, Silk Spectre 1 or 2. It's a little confusing which ones we're talking about. Uh, but Sally Spectre was this person who from essentially like a, would you imagine a pinup artist to be like on the side of an airplane bomber? She's that character and I guess she has the ability to fight a little bit. Um, but she you know, get ages out of the career and kind of encourages her daughter a little bit like a, the stereotype of a, of a pageant winner who then wants her daughter to be in a pageant. Yeah. So she forces Lori Jupiter um, into this role of Silk Spectre. And, but Lori, she participates in it. She meets Dr. Manhattan, who was already in a relationship with this woman, Janie, I believe. R- Lori Jupiter leads to the breakup of Dr. Manhattan, who gets looped into this group, uh, and then they form a relationship with Silk Spectre. And then we'll talk a little more about that, but that's kind of the connections there. But all of the things the, that are connecting these people in the story that we know is that someone killed the comedian, and we don't know who it is. And Rorschach is out trying to investigate. He goes to all the characters that we just talked about and says, hey, watch out. There's someone going after people that, that used to wear masks. Could it be one of our old villains, like the magician Moloch? Is, I think is an interesting, sad character uh, you can see basically what would the if the Joker could eventually retire and serve his time, and he's just trying to live his life in this really bad apartment. Rorschach's investigating. He thinks maybe he did it, maybe it was somebody else. But he's going through all the various characters. Ozymandias has a an assassination attempt done on him. So all these people think that this might actually be happening. That someone is going after uh, after the people that used to wear used to wear masks and that's an important story but throughout the entirety of this thing there's this constant you know news clip here or there or there's a newspaper here or there or there's a discussion about the soviets in the u.s might have some kind of a conflict and the comic book does a really good job with that just continually building this sense of anxiety that there's some sort of conflict happening uh you see nixon in a number of times because he has he's still a president you see him running through a war plan in the comic book where his generals are saying all right well we think that there's going to be a conflict. We're going to use nuclear weapons first so that we can get to theirs. Here's what the percentages are going to be like. Oh, unfortunately, we're going to lose both the East Coast and the West Coast, but we'll still have the farmland and everything will be okay. And they, they speak about this in very cavalier terms. In the in the movie, Nixon seems to almost be like relishing the idea. Of- How soon can we be ready for a preemptive strike? Two days. We have a 54% chance of wiping out the entire USSR before they get their missiles airborne. Assuming conservative projections of how many Soviet warheads we destroy beforehand, 
We'll lose all of the East Coast. The last gasp of the Harvard establishment. Let's see them think their way out of vision. With anticipated wind patterns, the fallout drifted head south. Mexico would catch the worst of it. Most of the farm belt might remain unaffected. Not so bad. All things considered. He seems to be relishing it. In the comic book, I actually like the version of Nixon where he seems more trapped by the world. He, he doesn't really want to start a nuclear war, but he doesn't see a way out of it, which I think more reflects what Moore is trying to get at as opposed to this Nixon and Zack Schneider's, which seems to be just like a caricature of, of yeah. Nixon. The film version of Nixon seems to be more Trumpian right. uh, before Trump actually ever you know, appeared on the scene. So. And I say that, of course, but the Nixon in the comic book is literally carrying a nuclear football. Instead of it being a briefcase, he's holding a football. It's like a metal football attached to his chain. And I can't tell if I think that's funny. That sounds like a joke that I would make, but it also sounds like a New Yorker cartoon. But anyway, so their people are we're very worried about this. Dr. Manhattan is working with Ozymandias to build some sort of free energy device to give free energy out to the world. And they think the reason why the Soviets are invading Afghanistan and causing all this conflict is because of resource conflict and war. So if we can just give free energy to everybody, then we won't have to worry about any sort of conflict. So Ozymandias and them are working together. Ozymandias says he hopes that this will work because the Russians have 51,000 warheads. And John, maybe he can stop 99% of them by turning them into Play-Doh or something, but it's not going to be enough. So, you know, that's one of the, you know, uh, one of the plot lines which I find challenging because if, on the one hand, Dr. Manhattan is so omnipotent and we're led, constantly mm-hmm. led to believe that he is nothing short of godlike. I mean, he can see the, his own future. Right. We forgot to mention that of all his powers, he can also see the future and past as one timeline. How he is completely unable to see Ozymandias's, if not the end result, then certainly the thinking in real time of, yeah. hey, is, you know, what would be other uses for this? Material and these items beyond what it is we're talking about. What are the safeguards we can yeah. put into effect? And on top of that, you have uh, the situation in which, okay, how is it that he's able to eliminate ninety nine percent of them, but not the last one percent? I mean, what is what is, is the flying, limitation yeah. of his power? Is he flying around like oh, I say that one? I'm going to I'm going right. to evaporate that one. What is you're right? When in so many situations, all he needs to do is you know give thought to something happening. For it to happen without whether or not he's physically present. One of the things I think that can maybe address some of those problems, they, they try to address it by saying, John normally can see the future and the past just fine, but there's some sort of disturbance that is affecting his mind. It's like how Yoda is able to see the future, but the Emperor Palpatine is, is manipulating something so he can't see the future. Mm-hmm. It's like that in a way. There's, he refers to these things called tachyons, which are real-life things, but they convert this to say it's some sort of matter that is traveling back in time. He thinks maybe Mr. Manhattan thinks it was a nuclear holocaust. One of the, the stories is that Dr. Manhattan, because he sees the world differently, he sees everything, he sees things on an atomic matter level, he doesn't really have humanity much left anymore. He loves Lori, but he doesn't maybe is increasingly not really knowing what that means. And he has to be convinced at the end of the movie and the end of the comic to save humanity. Why? Why do I have to save humanity? So maybe combination of the fact that he thinks 
there's some sort of nuclear conflict event that's preventing me from seeing the future. And because he's more and more being disconnected from humanity, he just doesn't look for those things anymore. He's solving this energy problem, but he isn't really caring about what the consequences would be if humanity weren't saved. I don't know. I think the comic and the movie both suffer from that one area. Yeah, and, and you know, the, the only way that I can explain it, and, and, you know, in sort of the broad sense, I think you, you know, sort of tease out uh, very well, is this idea that, yes, we can imbue mortals with godlike powers, but they're still mortal in terms of their willingness to consider, or in, in the case of Dr. Manhattan, willfully ignore what he had to know as he's creating these devices. He had to realize that there was something in them that would have a capacity for an alternative use, even if he didn't know who would undertake that. Right, exactly. And he is this, he's confronted with this, the consequences of his action um, when he goes on television, because I guess superheroes make TV appearances. And in this interview, uh, he's approached by a bunch of really aggressive reporters who say, you know, you, you seem to be not really caring that much. He makes this comment about... Ms. Black... You have the first question. Dr. Manhattan, as you know, the doomsday clock is a symbolic clock face analogizing humankind's proximity to extinction, midnight representing the threat of nuclear war. As of now, it stands at four minutes to midnight. Would you agree that we're that close to annihilation? My father was a watchmaker. He abandoned it when Einstein discovered that time is relative. I would only agree that a symbolic clock is as nourishing to the intellect as a photograph of oxygen to a drowning man. Which is not really the thing you want to hear that's protecting you from nuclear war. And he's confronted by reporters who come to him and say, hey, isn't it odd that all of your various colleagues in the past that you've worked with, including your former girlfriend, they've all either died from or are suffering from cancer induced by radiation maybe the question is are you the cause of this and then the reporters start to jump on him more and more and more and then he gets upset of one um, a, ra a rare moment of like emotion Please. if everyone would just go away and leave me alone i said leave me alone and decides i'm out of here and he goes to Mars, and he decides to maybe build his own world on Mars, and he creates this really impressive, this giant glass clock castle-like thing that floats in space, and he's trying to figure out, maybe, look at Mars, Mars is getting along just fine without life, maybe I can work here, and this is a little less complicated than humanity. So I think that's, uh, that's where he starts to, to get upset, and then without Dr. Manhattan around to stop the bombs, the 99% that he could stop, the character is a little bit more nervous. Um, we, we see things like Rorschach being arrested for being framed for murder of Moloch, the guy we talked about earlier. He goes to jail. Uh, Night Owl and Lori start up a little bit of a romance because Lori can't connect with John anymore, even though there's some love there. He fades away in the relationship. And Night Owl, this is one of the, this is the trickier things to talk about. Night Owl and Lori start up this romance, but... Night Owl can't really get his head in the game in terms of developing that relationship a little bit further because he's racked with anxiety. He's trying to, uh, you know, make out with Silk Spectre, but on TV is a discussion of nuclear war, and he's he feels helpless of his ability to 
do anything because he's no longer a superhero. He's been deflocked of his abilities, and he has this vision of a dream of them having a makeout session, and then there's a nuclear bomb that goes off in the in the background. So that's another interesting imagery there. But he wakes up, he dons his costume. Silk Spectre dons her costume. They get an Archie. They save a bunch of people from a burning building, and then they finally can consummate their relationship. So there's this sense of how do you gain agency in your life, and how do you do that? I don't know your thoughts on this. I remember you cracked up in laughter when you saw this on the screen. But it's inartfully done in the movie, but I would say it's just as kind of inartfully done in the comic. But it's it's interesting, at least. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I feel that um, a consistent or a common, maybe that's a better term, uh, flaw in a lot of Zack Snyder films is uh, relationships, mm-hmm. uh, particularly or primarily between men and women, he seems to have this stilted, almost what you would imagine a someone who uh, is uh, entire sense of reality is gamer, uh, comic mm. uh, world, right? You know, okay, I say something and then you say something and then we agree and then we go and have yeah. you know, a good time. So it's, it's very sort of simplistic. That being said, it is the baggage from personal relationships which constantly informs the plot line of the film. Whether it's, you know, how Silk Spectre 2 came into being, whether it's how, uh, you know, her relationship with Dr. Manhattan or his initial relationship with, with Jamie, it's Night Owl's, you know, rekindling of his, you know, essence mm-hmm. with uh, uh, Silk Spectre 2. You know, a lot of, you know, Rorschach and his relationship out of his family. I mean, everyone seems to come to the table with some sort of relationship uh, baggage that informs the way they both look at the world and how they choose to uh, engage in it. And, you know, in that regard, you know, you could argue that that is the most realistic aspect of, of the story overall. This relationship thing is so important, they decide to break Rorschach out of prison. Mm-hmm. Rorschach's kind of doing well on his own. There, I wouldn't even get into that story. That's a, a fun scene, um, a series of scenes of him in prison. But so he they get break out of, they break out of prison. Uh, Laurie gets taken away by Dr. Manhattan because he has this fun line of five minutes from now, you're going to try to convince me on Mars to save humanity. And then poof, disappears. Uh, and while that happens, Night Owl and Rorschach go to Ozymandias' office to say, hey, what's going on? I think Rorschach at one point finds some kind of letter that was sent to Moloch that has a connection to Pyramid Industries. This is a lot of detail, but they think there's some kind of connection there, but they bet the world's smartest man can figure it out. But then it turns out the the world's smartest man is actually behind a lot of this stuff. He's the one who seems to be hiring the assassin that attempted his his own death. And then we find out when they all go to uh, Ozymandias, of course, has like a fortress of solitude in Antarctica. Uh, they go there confronting him what's going on, and he freely admits to everything. I was behind all of the cancer deaths of Dr. Manhattan. I used some kind of radioactive gas to, to trick people in thinking that it was Dr. Manhattan. I was the one blocking Dr. Manhattan's visions uh, of the future using some kind of plot device, right? I was the one who killed the comedian because the comedian found out about my plan, and he's leading to what this plan might be. And even the comedian 
with all of his sense of nihilism and, and no uh, grounds for morality, it's a bridge too far and it cracks him. And all this stuff leads to the realization that the only way to Ozymandias, the only way he can stop World War III is to get the world united against another common enemy. And what's the what can be worse than a nuclear war? The, this is where the movie and the comics split apart here. Uh, what Ozymandias' plan is. Because it's leading to this whole classic Bond villain thing where I'm going to explain to you the, the plot and how I'm going to end the world, then maybe give you a shot to stop it. Ozymandias says, no, I've already done it 35 minutes ago. So in I'll maybe talk about what happens in the comic, and you and me mention what happens mm -hmm. in the movie. In the comic book, you, you see these hints all the way through that he's assembling like a movie crew to work on this de uh, deserted island somewhere, or he buys an island because he has the money to do so. And he ends up creating some kind of like giant squid monster that comes out of old 1940s and 50s monster movies. And he genetically engineers this monster so when it's transported using john's teleportation ability it dies and it creates in its death rattle this psychic wave that causes people's brains to like fry and die it's this weird thing it's like a neutron bomb that we talk about in the episodes a lot which it's some sort of nuclear bomb that does more destruction with radiation than it does actual destructive force damage uh it does something, and there's this dead alien that people think is an alien invasion. So the world is united. Russia, United States, they go down, they go back to DEFCON 5, and they say, we're going to unite to stop some sort of, I guess, alien invasion that's going to happen in the future. Cause so he lets this alien, drops it in Times Square, and a huge chunk of Manhattan is destroyed. Nowhere else in the world. But how does it? How does this play out? Because that's silly, right? Maybe. Uh, how does that play out in the movie? In the movie, it's several different major series around the world where uh, he and John have placed these energy devices, which that's like fifteen or so, yeah, detonate at the same time, and the belief being that since the governments will realize that they didn't launch anything, that and because they will have the fingerprints of the particular. You know, fusion, which uh, is uh, uh, specific to Dr. Manhattan, that therefore uh, Dr. Manhattan, on a whim, decided to take out 10 to 15 of the world's biggest cities. Well, yeah, he was he was accosted by fake news right. in an interview. That's my that's my reaction to those kind of things. So, you know, the, the, the whole premise being set up that, you know, having been uh, outed as uh, being devoid of any real humanity, you know, he, of course, his logical reaction yeah. was to... Uh, take out 10 to 15 of the world's largest cities. So this is, you know, in part where the storyline begins to fall down because at the moment that Nighthowl and Rorschach figure out in Manhattan that they have to go and stop Ozymandias in Antarctica, you would think that at that point, John, who has, you know, clearly maintained a sort of psychic or some other you know, supernatural ability of knowing what people are doing that are closest to him, that at a minimum he would have understood at that point that right, something's happening. happening. But again, you know, based upon the plot line with the movie, presumably he is distracted by his engagement with Silk Spectre. On but Mars. On <laughs> Mars. The problem with that is, is that we've also seen in the film that John is so godlike mm -hmm. as to be almost omnipotent. He can... He can, you know, replicate himself 
he can be aware of things happening in other parts of the world in real time. And so again, this sort of you know notion of omnipotence, okay, you can't see the future, but as events are unfolding, that combined with your intellect, the fact that you know that these right. things are created by you, that's the part that I think sort of falls down. Even if he can't see into the future, how he cannot intuit. Yeah. Or at least uh, be able to say, huh, you know, the circumstances are sort of perfect for someone who would want to do X, Y, or Z. Yeah, he doesn't really seem to be able to see the future past the point of when the tachyons or whatever, like mm -hmm. after the event. Mm -hmm. It seems like as soon as this happened, as soon as these things started going on, he's no longer able to see anything. But it's weird why he was wouldn't be able to see this plan developing maybe like five years before. Mm -hmm. Something that doesn't really make a lot of sense, but it forces the characters to have a reaction to that. Mm -hmm. uh, Night Owl and Silk Spectre have this reaction that and this is where we're going to start to transition maybe to the nuke themes is this is you know essentially a parallel to the atomic bombing of japan an end that justifies the means it's we wanted to end more suffering that would have happened if we didn't do this particular action that's ozymandias's whole plan essentially it's well i know i feel guilty about having to do this but this is the only thing that will cause peace to last two superpowers retreating from war this is as much your victory as it is mine. Now we can return. Do what we were meant to. We were meant to exact justice. Everyone's gonna know what you've done. Well then, by exposing me, you would sacrifice the peace so many died for today. Peace based on a lie. But peace, nonetheless, is right. Exposing Hadrian would only doom the world to nuclear destruction again. No. We can't do this. On Mars. You taught me the value of life. If we hope to preserve it here, we must remain silent. Keep your own secrets. And you have reactions of the characters I think are interesting. Dr. Manhattan very coldly, scientifically says, I don't condone your actions, but I understand them. So in the movie, he's willing to go into self-exile because the whole world hates him and they're trying to fight him, I guess. Uh, and then in the comic book, he goes into self-exile because he just... He wants to start life somewhere else, and the world unites that way. Night Owl and Silk Spectre, in many ways, are like people who will say, I'm happy that the military did what it did in World War II. I, I'm not, I don't have, I think there's morality problems, but I'm, I'm comfortable with people being killed in my name and protections. That's what I think at least Moore is trying to get at here. You know, where this, again, you know, is somewhat problematic, uh, but where we see it echoed in... Uh, both before and after Moore's uh, writings. So you have this premise in which the idea is that someone who is super wealthy and super smart is going to decide how the world ends. Yeah, the elites in, will in, do that. In, yeah. fact, in fact, in back-to-back -back James Bond uh, films, Spy Who Loved Me and then Moonraker, you have two different super villains yeah. whose idea of world domination is actually to kill life in one case on the surface of the planet, in the other case, all life on the planet, in order to create a better society. And those actually predate Moore's writing of this story by a good 10 years. And then, you know, going into the future, a recent movie, Kingsman, you know, Samuel L. Jackson plays this, 
you know, blood adverse oligarch, the you know, wealthiest man in the world, and he's going to wipe everyone else using sonic uh, signals that drive everyone into a murderous rage, hmm. except for the elite that he has chosen and brought into his idea. And this is all in the premise of avoiding ultimate destruction through climate change. So hmm. you have you know this recurring theme both prior to and after Moore's uh, opus. And the the other thing that I find weird about is, is, okay, why not reveal the fact that Ozymandias had done this? After all, then what you're doing is saying, oh, look, we were so easily manipulated by one individual who held himself out as smarter than himself mm-hmm. and happens to still be living in Antarctica. <laughs> Let's go kill him. Uh, and why, you know, Night Owl and Silk Spectre wouldn't have let that cat out of the bag. Nothing's going to happen to Dr. Manhattan because he's already you know, moving on to the cosmos. Yeah, what are they going to do to them anyways? Right. right. So, you know, that's what I, that's where sort of the ending of the logic anyway behind the film, and I would argue the graphic novel as well, sort of falls down. Uh, it's unclear to me why revealing the story wouldn't do anything other than unite people to understand that Ozymandias had done this. Now, maybe the more difficult challenge for Moore, and, and I don't know enough about him or his politics to say this for certain, is that it's sort of the idea that, um, look, part of our identity, in this case superheroes, but in our case as a nation, is that we have to believe that we're the good guys. Mm. Slavery was just a phase. Uh, you know, Genocide of Native Americans is just a, a, a practical reality that had to happen in order for we as a nation to come together. You know, those are alternative narratives of our history. And so, you know, regardless of whether or not you agree with them, this premise that we don't tell the truth because Mm. a larger good can be established is a common struggle, even in real time narratives around national identity and our role in the world and who we are as superpowers, let alone superheroes. I think that is definitely what this story is trying to get at. And maybe if I want to take it one step further beyond a national identity. I think part of the argument that at least the characters in the, sh- in the, in the movie and in the comic are saying is humanity's very nature is savage. It, we only work together in pursuits of the same enemy. And this continues to happen. So you have to build an even worse enemy. And what is the more uh, scary enemy of fighting people on Earth, but something beyond Earth? So I, I can see the logic a little bit there. But you see people like Rorschach, who's the final person to respond to this. He says, no, I refuse to live in this world where this lie is out there. So he goes out to reveal it. Dr. Manhattan, because he's already made the choice to let this lie exist, he has to destroy Rorschach. And Rorschach recognizes that. But he, much like how the comedian broke, they both are very much an end to justify the means people. This, you're right, the scope of this was too much. So he says, fine, if you have to do it, do it. And then you see Rorschach being essentially his insides turned inside out. Of course you must protect rights in a utopia. What's one more body amongst foundations? What are you waiting for? Do it! I think it's a movie where he has this interesting imagery where they pan away from his body essentially is now an inkblot. The comic book didn't do that, and I was like, oh, that's actually a pretty good addition. 
Yeah, now now Rorschach is now is a is an imprint uh, on the snow, and we have to, as the audience, look at that and draw our own reactions to all these individual characters and what they would do. But the story ends on a very mysterious note because Rorschach, this entire time, is writing in a journal. He's a journaler. Uh, he likes to, I don't know if he's also into scrapbooking, but he's definitely into journaling. And he mails away or drops off in a, in a mail slot at this newspaper. It was kind of like a, they're not the New York Times or like offbeat news kind of people, maybe alt news crew called the New Frontier, the News Frontier, something like that. Uh, his journal, he drops it off. And there's a scene at the end where there's this question of, uh, we don't have anything to write about because the world is at peace because this plan worked, at least for the time being. So write whatever you want, this young editor, and he gets this journal, and the question is, will it be revealed, and what's the future going to take place? Yeah, I think this is one of those things where the, the narrative is very much informed by the contemporary mediums that were available. Just recently, within the past couple of months, uh, a number of what are known as um, alternative free newspapers, which used to be... Uh, the forerunner to what we now see in terms of individuals' blog posts. Mm -hmm. You know, these were the stories that were offbeat, that weren't covered by the, the, the larger daily newspapers. And that's clearly what the New Frontier is premised on. In Seattle, this was The Stranger. In Atlanta, it was called Creative Loafing. Here in huh. D.C., it was simply called The City Paper. In New York, the very first one was The Village Voice. So, you know, these are, you know, so that's the... The, the conduit by which Rorschach is certain that something will be printed because he doesn't trust corporate media entities, etc. And, and that's the thing about Rorschach's character that really you know, fascinates me. And it is, it is the distinction between himself and the comedian. The comedian is a loner. The comedian has no relationships with anyone. Rorschach, at a minimum, is invested in the group, mm -hmm. which is what sets him on, off on this journey. And more than that, he is invested in his relationship that, that he has developed over time with the night owl. In all this anger and, and antipathy uh, bordering on uh, misanthropy uh, against the, the larger world, he ends up being the champion of the notion of basic humanity. It is one thing for you to go after someone you know to be a criminal or you believe to be a criminal based on something they have done versus the idea of going after something that has yet to happen and that requires the death of millions who may have not had any role in what the action is that we are hurtling towards. Yeah, none, none of the characters seem to want to go after Nixon mm -hmm. or Gorbachev or right. any sort of leadership. Right. None of them want to go after that. It's just, it's how do we solve the basic problems of people? And I think you, you see that in a little bit in what we was revealed about the comedian's relationship because you talk about him as a loner, I think the story starts with him by himself in his, you know, nice apartment. Mm -hmm. But he's just he's living like the bachelor life, and he's a little bit of a slob. You, we find out that he actually has a daughter. It's Lori Jupiter. Mm -hmm. He raped her mother, mm -hmm. and then eventually the mother reconciled in a, in a way and kind of came to appreciate him, at least in the sense that she felt sad because she aged out of this profession where she sensed a meaning in her life was able to generate that and then when she tried to become essentially a regular person she couldn't cope with that so well um but the comedian you know what she says at the end of the movie is the comedian is all his faults uh he gave her the daughter mm -hmm. and that's a beautiful moment that causes uh john to dr manhattan to say well i guess maybe 
humanity is worth saving because out of all of this craziness, someone that I like, you know, Lori, you came out of that. So mm-hmm. therefore, miracles can happen. Yeah, I mean, that's actually one of the plot lines that, you know, I, I, I wrestle with and, and, you know, particularly now uh, in the Me Too moment because there's, there's yeah. this clear, you know, forgiveness of this heinous act because of what came out of it. I feel is too easy and out. And the only way in which it is try, there's any effort to sort of rationalize it is that, Oh, well, you know, as a function of nostalgia and a function of the fact that he is able to stay in the life, if, as you, as if you will, as a superhero and, and I'm not, and therefore I continue to have this, uh, uh, I'm uh, living uh, my, uh, my desires through him is is a little troubling to me in all this, but you know, I mean, it is certainly reflective of, of, of how the storyline plays out. One of the more difficult themes to, to run through and which is funny in a story where one of the major themes, which we'll start talking about now is nuclear war. It's, it's uncomfortable, but it's not as uncomfortable as more of these relationship dynamics, uh, whether it be uh, Rorschach's early childhood Mm -hmm. or, any of those other pieces too so it's a it's not a comfortable comic it's not mm-hmm. one that you can sit down with a with a scotch and kind of appreciate and enjoy <laughs> or maybe if you're younger maybe like some chocolate milk yeah. or something it's it's a it makes you really think right. all these, thinker. there are all these you know hypocrisies built onto conundrums built yeah. onto you know morally compromised situations you know and each time you go down the path where you think you might find a way out you run into one of these roadblocks which yeah. you know make uh, uh the whole journey challenging which you know from a literary standpoint I, I completely appreciate it's part of the reason why i was so keen on on seeing the film mm-hmm. uh you know and, and getting you guys to see it on the other hand you know you know like all art you you view it in the context of time as times evolve we've talked a lot about the plot but i think it's important because this is a this was considered an unfilmable story and zach schneider is as many faults you can say about this film i think at least tells most of the story fairly well i, I think hopefully this is not an unpodcastable discussion so we tried to get through it the best we could um, but i have four overall points i think would be interesting to run through and especially i work in this field this is kind of my my life you may be a part of some of these moments in time but maybe you don't on a day-to-day basis think about nuclear war which is probably <laughs> good you probably have your own things yes. you worry about <laughs> maybe yeah, maybe more nowadays but the four points i have here i would love to get your perspective on the overall nuclear weapon theme that runs through this is is the first one the second is like you have a fun little chat about the doomsday clock which is what motivated me to want to do this episode in the first place we'll talk about dr manhattan as an atomic bomb and finally, Ozymandias' colossal wreck, his endgame, how he wants to save the world. And kind of, we talked a little bit about whether or not that made sense, but we can get into even more super critical detail about that. Okay, so the first one, overall nuclear weapon themes. Uh, this is a, a pretty hard one to miss. Mm-hmm. It's more in the comic <laughs> than it is in the movie, but in throughout both of these stories, nuclear weapons are a consistent point of reference for the characters, for the story plot elements as well as uh, motivations uh, for the people that we follow. Uh, Watchmen is partially, we already mentioned, is about Alan Moore's critique of the United States and global politics since the end of World War II. Uh, Nukes plus 
Dr. Manhattan in the comic book world gave America the power to be the world's policeman and, dare I say, watchman. Uh, it allowed America, in Alan Moore's view, to stretch the bounds of maybe what would be acceptable state behavior because it no longer felt threatened by other countries' reaction. The atomic bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki are mentioned almost on every other page of the comic book. You see references to uh, 11-year-old Walter Kovacs. Rorschach. He writes an essay for school, uh, I believe, saying that it was okay for Truman to drop the atomic bomb because even though it killed thousands, he thinks it saved millions. This is one of those, the comics always end with uh, the story and then there's like a little bit of like a dossier, maybe an article of in-world article or things like this. That's kind of where that takes place. You see characters constantly making references to the fact that it's Hiroshima week, so it's like the anniversary of the atomic bombing. Uh, you see Time Magazine in the comics. There's like a cover page of a watch that's stopped at a particular time. And that's a, th a thematic, like that time that it dropped was 8.15 a.m. It's when the clock stopped. It's when the bomb went off. And there's constant references to the United States and Russia wouldn't start a war in Hiroshima week. They would respect the anniversary. I don't really know why. There's constant reflections to, you know, what Japan may have also been feeling before and after these moments and they're trying to connect that to how they may have felt. Uh, one little side note is that it was Newsweek that actually had the cover of the watch, but I guess because they wanted to continue this theme of time and how much time we have left, they, they switched it to Time Magazine. You see a silhouette uh, graffitied onto a wall and multiple characters, much like how a, a Rorschach would, you would look at something and then reflect upon it, a Rorschach test. Different characters have reflected on that it looks like you know, two people making out and it's horrible, or it's there are two people embracing when the atomic bomb went off in Hiroshima and Nagasaki because there's constantly references to the shadows that may have taken place. So one of the things people saw after the flash of light, uh, the quick amount of thermal heat when the atomic bombs were dropped in Japan, people who were exposed to that light, if they were up against a hard surface, their shadows would appear because their flesh absorbed the heat and their shadows are now left and etched. And there's this one story from a book that it's hard to read. Uh, it's called To Hell and Back, The Last Train Out of Hiroshima. And the story that is about a child who people refer to as Marble Boy of Hiroshima. His name is Toshiko Masuda. And he was not too far from where the ground zero was. The story is, I'm quoting here, Masuda was about to leave his shadow on a wall in his family garden. He appeared to be bending down to pick up a piece of fruit or to pull out a weed. During the next few milliseconds, the wall behind Toshiko would be flash printed not only with his shadow, but with the ghost images of the plants that surrounded him and which were providing his skin with some small measure of flash protection from the searing white glare. On the wall print at the moment of the bomb's awakening could be seen the shadow of a leaf that had just detached itself from a vine and though falling, would never reach the ground. These are some of the moments that people really, it sticks with them. And I'm surprised, but not that surprised, that this is a reoccurring motif in the comic book series itself. Um, in addition to all those imagery, uh, Moore argues that the very foundation of America's post-World War II power, despite all the good you can say that America has done, is tainted by this original sin of the atomic bombings and continually is poisoned by the idea you prepare for peace by preparing for war, more, building more and more dangerous weapons. So that's kind of, I think, the, the running connections that Moore has uh, with nuclear weapons. And there's 
and even the music selection in the movie, I think, attaches it to itself. So one example is there's a date night scene with Silk Spectre and Night Owl and 99 Balloons plays, which, you know, it's a fun little song, uh, whether it's in German or English. The song has a little bit of its origins as a, a protest to U.S. missile deployments, nuclear missile deployments in Europe, and about how an accidental war can get started by thinking balloons were an incoming attack. Uh, so even those little tiny moments, it really hits you on the head. Like, did you feel that way when you were, maybe recently you rewatched the movie, did that come across pretty strong? Yeah, it, it really does present itself pretty well. I would say that it's probably not as repetitive as it is in the comic. Almost every other page, there's yeah. some sort of reference to Hiroshima, Nagasaki, people's response to that. But clearly the larger picture, and in particular when they introduce real world elements, whether it's Nixon or a news article that's being put out there, it reinforces this notion of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And you know this question that Moore raises in terms of original sin, I, I can certainly remember growing up, my introduction into history and, and therefore politics was first reading around the Civil War and then second reading around World War II. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that that was unusual for a lot of kids from my generation. Leave that for the listeners to decide which generation <laughs> that is. But the, the point being that this idea that this terrible thing was justified because it saved more of uh, more American lives. And while I won't go so far as to say that I have uh, completely revisited my thoughts on this uh, from when I was a kid, but I will say this, you know, the original premise upon uh, the Germans vis-a-vis -vis Britain was to starve them out, essentially both of material resources uh, foodstuffs for their island population mm -hmm. through submarine warfare. And we know from what we saw in 1941 through most of 1942, there were real fundamental questions of whether or not there would be enough to continue to supply the civilian population versus military assets. Now, when you then take that logic and you apply it to Japan, in September of 1945, their situation is even more dire than Britain. I mean, every major city has been firebombed. There is no cavalry on the way, if you will, you know, either in terms of you know some other fascistic power out there. Germany has already fallen. Italy has fallen. Mm -hmm. The Soviet Union is on the brink of entering the war by that point. Um, the Chinese uh, guerrillas have retaken most of, of China. I, so I think there's a genuine question here as to whether or not the U-boat strategy that had been applied to Great Britain wasn't on the verge of reality in Japan. And so this idea that the only way that Japan could have been defeated is through an invasion, and that invasion would have been so detrimental to the United States that there was no other option except to do the bomb. I, I, th I think that the fact that Churchill, a war leader, lost his re-election shortly after the war ends in Europe might have been just as much of a of a consideration because the war by that point for the United States was about to hit its uh, fourth anniversary. Um, there had been tremendous losses, particularly in the battles as they were getting closer and closer to Japanese soil 
in, including Japanese territories of Iwo Jima and Okinawa. Mm-hmm. You know, this question of expediency versus necessity, I think, at a minimum, is, you know, something that bears a greater examination. I don't think it is difficult or impossible in any way, shape, or form to make an argument that Hiroshima and Nagasaki were more about, you know, ending the war quickly, uh, ending it in a way in which there was uh, maximum uh, assets to absorb and in a way in which you know would not lead to a necessarily disruption of political power structure and and also to identify to the soviet union that yeah the united states is a force to be reckoned with yes absolutely like i said i'm you know i'm not sure that uh, that that i land there but you know one of the our secretary of state at the time was uh, jimmy burns Hmm. who unlike harry truman had been informed and very much aware of of how things were progressing. As we know from the internment process in the United States of Japanese citizens, in terms of the newsreel footage and what you know Americans were receiving back home, this whole idea that the Japanese were vicious, not altogether like us, was simply not applied to the, the Germans. We know what the power of that suggestion can be and that you know the u.s was still a segregated society it already been willing to put japanese american citizens in internment camps so the idea that this was entirely about uh, you know concern for yeah. our losses you know i'm not sure is something that can be simply taken at, at face value and we, we get into that the last episode that i recorded and released was on the man of the high castle mm-hmm. and then that is very much at the heart of of that story is uh, p- some people may look at that story and say, isn't it weird to see America as a fascist state, at least in the East Coast? I think part of the story is is that, no, it's not like crazy. It's if given a few things to change, people adapt. At least many people are willing to adapt to those circumstances. I would say that the movie pulls a moral punch. Hmm. If it had been much more explicitly about the ethics around Hiroshima and Nagasaki, I think that would have made it a much more difficult film to enter into the mainstream. I mean, that yeah, is less that of is, a blockbuster. That is that is a narrative that has yet to gain traction within the the larger, I would say, public mindset. I mean, I think that there are people who yeah, are raising yeah. these questions, who you know are making the arguments and the case for this. I think that there hasn't been any sort of national discussion around this. And I feel that the movie probably pulled its punch in, in that regard in making a conscious decision to not make it as explicit in the film as it was in the graphic novel. There's two reactions to that. One is it couldn't have told that story because that debate, even though it's one of those things people may talk about in their high school class, the top level moral question like and whether or not the bomb was a, you know, a good decision or bad. That was something you may talk about in high school, but it's not something we think about over the course of our life. The, the context doesn't make sense. So the story, people won't reflect on that and can't associate it with their own life that well when maybe they could in 1986 when this came out. But the other flip side is maybe we should be telling these stories because this really happened. This is something that continues to be you know, how people think about. We, we talk about the bomb today. In that same calculus, we used the bomb in a heroic way to end World War II. It's sad that we had to do this, but if we ever have to use the bomb again, it'll be under the same circumstances to get at a country. You know, We will use nuclear weapons against North Korea because they will threaten us. 
and it's it's will will actually are saving lives because a ground invasion of North Korea will kill so many more people. So those same things are there. Should this have leaned more into that story? You may have already gone over this in a, in a previous podcast, but a, a documentary film called The Atomic Cafe. I've referenced it, but haven't done it yet. It is really a fantastic piece of work. It is entirely right. made up of government-produced film around uh, the, the Hiroshima and Nagasaki explosions and its impact and, and its you know sort of travel through American history. And the thing that we find uh, and that we don't see a lot of discussion around is how many people thought that we should use the nuclear bomb in Korea, then in Vietnam. You know, then there was the question around, you know, whether or not we would want to, you know, as I mentioned before, that the Reagan administration had this first strike mm-hmm. uh, articulation in the early 1980s. And for a power that, you know, is concerned about limiting the, the access to nuclear weaponry, you know, we bear the burden of having been the only country to use this in combat. And furthermore, it is not an option that we don't at least talk about on a regular basis you know, within the highest councils mm-hmm. of governing strategy. And, you know, this is not a, a, a partisan thing. What, what, what cracks me up in part around the, the video in Korean War is that you have Lloyd Benson, who would go on to be the Democratic nominee for vice president in 1988, juxtaposed against Richard Nixon. Both of them are talking about, you know, let's just drop a few nukes. You mm-hmm. know? And, of course, this is the reason why, you know, Truman eventually fires uh, MacArthur, mm-hmm. uh, but was also the pressure that Eisenhower felt from the McCarthy wing uh, of the Republican Party. So, you know, at all of these key junctures informed by this notion of a larger threat, communism, yeah. right? We, we continually go through this motion of trying to decide whether or not this is the right time to use it again. And, you know, simply as more countries achieve nuclear status that is the very same question they will go through and you know look i i don't think i have any confidence in either north korean or iran's councils around whether or not to use uh, nuclear weapons i I live in dread that both of them will decide that this is a rational act Mm -hmm. but if we do the reverse logic on this and you say to yourself okay we are a smaller nation that has no capacity for defeating the United States in anything like a fair fight. What are the ethics of us using this capacity in an otherwise unethical fashion? Because what other choice do we have? I mean, you, we, we hear a lot in the news about the bloody nose strategy, which is the United States and its allies will hit North Korea in the face and say back down in a crisis. And that'll lead to, due to plot, some sort of, a result that works in our favor. But you can just as easily see North Korea when faced up against uh, uh, an incoming threat that it believes is going to be a land invasion will use nuclear weapons or chemical or biological weapons on Seoul, on Guam, some sort of American territory that's not the homeland, perhaps. And that will be the thing to say, look, we mean business. And they can justify using nuclear weapons because it will prevent more casualties on their side. I think that this continues to be the type of things that lead people to update the doomsday clock, which is a good transition now to our second point. The doomsday clock, as we previewed a little bit, is something that got started in 1947. It's a symbol of what the capacity is and where we are in the world to doomsday, to midnight. So the further you get, say you're at five minutes, and then you're at four minutes, you're closer to 
the end of the world. And the cover of Watchmen is literally the emoji happy smile face with a drop of blood from the comedian on it. And it's just the right way so it looks like the hands of a minute and hour clock and it gets closer and closer to midnight. So that running motif is definitely there. Every comic, I think, starts, because there's 12 issues of this Watchmen comic, everyone starts with a clock moving closer and closer to midnight until, and also very kind of a scary thing, uh, uh, drops of blood from the top of the page slowly get closer down to the bottom of the, where the clock is until Ozymandias' plan happens in the comic and you see the hands are at midnight and there's blood from people on on the clock itself and that continues and continues to come in through it in the movie as i mentioned it's like in the first two minutes there's a discussion of this of the doomsday clock and for some reason even in the comic in this dr strange love like war room where nixon's hanging out and debating these things they have the doomsday clock there so really this thing has inundated itself into pop culture within the story and i think people may hear about it recently uh, it has been moved closer. Now it's at two minutes to midnight. But when it was when it was debuted in 1947, the message behind it was to warn the public about how close we are to destroying our world with dangerous technologies of our own making. It is a metaphor, a reminder of the perils we must address if we are to survive on this planet. Have you heard about the Doomsday Clock in Things Beyond Watchmen? Mm. In things beyond Watchmen, nothing really leaps to mind, that, which is not in any way... You don't have an app on your phone that just tells you yeah, how close yeah, you are? I haven't seen something, and, and nothing really comes to mind about it. But, you know, look, you know, w- whether you're talking about uh, the threat of nuclear holocaust or, or some other global notion, I mean, ironically, with the fall of the Soviet Union, people are still world worried that the world is going to come to an end. They just don't see the Soviet Union as being the, the, the way in which that is going to happen. So you hmm. have movies like 2012, and you have movies like uh, The Day After Tomorrow, and all of these are about global threats to everyone. You know, I mean, I think there have now been sort of stand-ins for nuclear war. They come from the same place, right? This idea that we ourselves will be the cause of our own demise uh, if we do not find a way to unite as a global species as opposed to a universe of nationally divided populations. Well, now you sound just like Ozymandias. <laughs> well, I mean, well, right. that, and that's the concept, but, but right? That's my point is that, you know, like, I, you know, look, I think Ozymandias in this thing is completely devoid. Whatever good is his intent mm-hmm. is devoid by the evil of his action. Right, right. And that there is no way to, you know, like, yes, you have a point of logic. Your solution is completely nuts, right? Mm-hmm. And in no way separates you from every other mass murderer from governance that's ever existed, let alone a private individual who's, you know, as a function of his super enhanced uh, abilities of quote unquote reasoning and intellect, mm-hmm. allow him to construct uh, this scenario. Um, and I think that is, you know, the that is in some ways a populist narrative that Moore has relative to Ozymandias is that so much. Uh, in so many comics, you know, these wealthy elites are the the de facto hero. And why is it that we impute them with this power? Well, because they're able to see things that the rest of us can't. Really? I'm not really sure that that's true. I mean, so, yeah. you know, uh, so, and I, and I, and, and so that's where I think the conundrum comes. This doomsday clock had a connections to some of these elites, these scientists uh, that were worried about where nuclear weapons technology, where the arms race was going. 
So when it was designed in 1947, it was the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists asked an artist, uh, Martil Langsford, to do the cover. Mm -hmm. And she was married to a Manhattan Project scientist, mm -hmm. Alexander Langsford. Originally, the artist used, was thinking about using the symbol for uranium, but through all these conversations with her friends in this community of Manhattan Project scientists, they always would mention um, their sense of urgency, a sense of time, how much time they may have left. That's where the motif comes into, into effect. So she sketched out a clock, uh, and then that's originally where it came from. And it started at seven minutes to midnight, not based on any sort of thing. It, she just said it looked good to her eye. So you're raising a finger here. What do you got? Uh, well, I just wanted to say that, you know, that, that very question about, you know, elites having the answers and how America is perceived by the rest of the world mm -hmm. is at the heart of the, uh, of the Marvel Avengers movie, Age of Ultron. Right. right? That's, that's the whole conundrum right. that Tony faces. These are not original concepts that Moore discusses, but they are, but we can see their influence in all of these other story arcs within um, specifically the comic book world. Right. Uh, absolutely. Um, when we are trying to sort through some of these conundrums, when the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists updates their clock, because mm -hmm. they move it based on what they perceive as world events. They try to think it's every once a year or when when times will present themselves for the need for it. This group, I mentioned, is a Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists or a group of, of scientists and journalists and since 1973 before that it was like the editor would make a decision about where the clock should be since then they have a science and security board with some renowned people uh, there's also a board of sponsors and with 15 Nobel laureates and scientists and policymakers they get together and they decide where this clock should be and it's been moved 27 times since 1947 uh, it, it was at five minutes to midnight in 2012 it's been three minutes since 2015, and last year it was at two and a half minutes. But on January 25th, 2018, it was changed to two minutes, largely reflecting... In this year's clock discussions, nuclear issues took center stage yet again. To call the world's nuclear situation dire is to understate the danger and its immediacy. We considered the ossified state of arms control negotiations and non-proliferation agreements as well as new testing undertaken by North Korea, nuclear exercises built into Russia's military plans, and an enhanced commitment to nuclear weapons in Pakistan, India, and China. We considered at length the lack of predictability in how the United States is thinking about the future and future use of its own nuclear weapons, and unpredictability that it is embodied in statements and tweets by the President of the United States. And two minutes to midnight is you want some context, it's the closest it's ever been to midnight since 1953, when we were just in that early stages of thermonuclear conflict, thermonuclear weapons being developed, the, the Cold War was just starting to get hot. So there's that's kind of where we are, and that's where um, the calculus has been to why they are at two minutes now. And I can't remember whether or not that happens immediately before or after quitter uh, storm in which you yeah. know, the, the, the current commander-in-chief refers to how much bigger his button is versus Kim Jong-un. Uh, uh, you know, I mean, the, yeah. and it also goes to, look, this is not, um, I don't think the doomsday clock is necessarily definitive. I think that it's subject to interpretation. Right. And But I think, you know, if in the past we have learned over time that the commander-in-chief, you know, has been confronted regularly whether it was Kennedy or Johnson or Nixon or whoever, with this question of 
should we or shouldn't do in terms of nuclear weapons. This is the first time that we've had a commander in chief explicitly articulating its use as a means to resolve a problem. Mm -hmm. And I think that is, you know, clearly the the context in which this movement is is happening. It may not be the case that we're any more substantively closer. Is the fact that the person who has a nuclear football at their disposal um, and seems to be prone to uh, bursts of I- I- irrational emotion, fumbling the football. Or something. Yeah, seems to you know you know is openly and explicitly uh, utilizing its existence as, as as a public negotiating tool. Those types of arguments, people will criticize the mm-hmm. bulletin of atomic scientists doomsday sure. clock because they'll say it, it's more it's reflective on what recently has happened mm-hmm. and. It, other times it doesn't make a lot of sense. Like it was relatively safe during the Cuba Missile Crisis right. because they didn't they don't update it immediately. Yeah, it's yeah. not based on time. So in 1963, uh, it was moved actually from seven minutes to 13 minutes. And their their argument was it's a lot about capacity to deal with conflicts. And you can say how close we were to the Cuba Missile Crisis leading to a nuclear war, and we were very close. We we're very lucky. Mm-hmm. But because of negotiations and arms limitation agreements that took place after that fact, they felt this was okay, and this is kind of a reflection of where we are. And then we people, once you start to include climate change into it, then it becomes a pol- – some people will consider it to be a political tool. It's climate change is – it's an issue where most people would say this is a science-driven fact. Absolutely. And others would say, well, once you want to talk about climate change, now I, I can't support this concept anymore mm-hmm. because you're starting to – move into territory where it's political. Again, I'm sort of of mixed opinions here because on the one hand, climate change is an empirical science-based or articulated threat, uh, which has been made political, I don't think in and of itself is political in and of itself. And um, I understand it being combined because if if the doomsday clock represents an existential threat to humanity, that is a legitimate narrative. But, you know, because the doomsday clock has largely been seen in the context of nuclear destruction and, you know, sort of an explicit act by humanity against itself, that is where people are, you know, where people who say, oh, don't include climate science, that would make more sense to me than the argumentation that is, you know, inherently political. I would argue that that is solely a function of the people who are making that assertion. Uh, agreed. Uh, and that's why I think there's an incredible value to the Doomsday Clock mm-hmm. as a reference point. It's fascinating in the movie and in the comic because there, so much of this is about time. Literally, the next comic book series that's taking place right now is called Doomsday Clock. It doesn't really have to do with the clock very much, but because that is such a strong imagery, it's strong thematic tie, people understand that. You see that more and more. We recently did... An old movie from, I think, 1963 called Ladybug, Ladybug, which you can't even get anymore. But it starts immediately with the theme of time and whether or not people have time left to respond to a false alarm. We did it and tie into the uh, Hawaii missile scare. This story Mm -hmm. is about a group of children in an elementary school that think that there's an attack incoming and they, we don't know whether or not there is one, mm-hmm. but the children are sent home, and then they have these existential debates about what nuclear war is and isn't. Uh, so these things continue to come up over and over again about time, and I think that this is, a, I think it's a valuable symbol and a good reference point for people to at least begin the conversation. So I don't know where they're going to go. Two minutes is very close. Yeah. 
I don't know how much you get closer without really uh, kind of getting beyond the metaphor a little bit, but it certainly hopefully is a rallying point for people to move on. So actually, the, the this question around climate change, you know, I feel that there is a movie that was ostensibly about nuclear conflict, but because of the plot that they've constructed in order to address it, it actually has greater meaning within the context of climate change, and that's the movie On the Beach. Right, right. Right? Because while it is ostensibly about a post-nuclear conflict, it's about the idea that there is this impending radiation cloud that is moving on uh, Australia and New Zealand. And mm-hmm. We essentially know when the moment will come in which we pass on, and the whole film is about how would we define ourselves in that context. I have a plan for an episode at some point because that was originally a book. Mm-hmm. It was a Gregory Peck movie. Mm-hmm. They remade the movie. Uh, and then they also, it's a play, but you can get a, a, a mm-hmm. script of the play. So I'm going to do an episode where we do all four of those and talk oh, wow. about how this one particular story can be told. Because there, there are incredible in scientific inaccuracies mm-hmm. in that story. Oh, yeah. But it is one of these things that it tells the theme. And even though it may not do it very well mm-hmm. scientifically accurately, it makes people like me pull my hair out. Uh, and that's why I don't have any hair anymore. It's because <laughs> I've been going through all these things. It's a, it's a fascinating narrative there. And I think... Again, segue to our next point we'll talk about is Dr. Manhattan as a symbol mm-hmm. for the atomic bomb. Because we, we mentioned a little about his origin story. He was forged in a science experiment gone wrong. John, the character's main name, I think it's a John is it Osterman or something along those lines. He reassembles his vaporized body and becomes Dr. Manhattan. Uh, he has incredible powers, a real-life superhero in this world where most people that are superheroes are just people that can punch really well. He also has another way of being nuclear power as well. He helps to create electric cars. He makes electric cars a reality by synthesizing some sort of element that we need for a battery. Uh, so he not only has a role as a weapon, but also as a power source. But I think is a little another side thing that's very small in the story, but it's kind of fun to add on to. Uh, yeah, you know, I think the the, the biggest uh, challenge I know that you know something you and I referenced uh, before the podcast began is this question of is Doctor Manhattan simply a fact of life, hmm. right? There is certainly the is Ozymandias certainly believed that he had a way of getting rid of Doctor Manhattan and utilizing the same technology essentially that created him that worked to create him. Doctor Manhattan making it very clear that you know one of the first things he perfected <laughs> was the ability to reassemble himself. Reassembling myself was the first trick I learned. It didn't kill Osterman. Did you really think it would kill me? I have walked across the surface of the sun. I have witnessed events so tiny and so fast, they can hardly be said to have occurred at all. But you, Adrian, are just a man. The world's smartest man poses no more threat to me than does its smartest termite. Idiot. So, yeah, it's, 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 it's such a snarky line right. delivered by an omnipotent being. It, was, it, it really sort of blurs the line between, like, demigod and still you know, squarely human. You're like, hey, well, you have humanity left. You just <laughs> drop a sick burn on this guy. So, uh, the, which begs the question to my mind is whether or not the key, at least in that instance, the thing that Ozymandias had not uh, allowed for, was how to keep John from reassembling. Mm-hmm. I certainly have no idea what what 
the theoretical or practical technology would be that you would utilize to do that. Mm -hmm. But if we can all agree that at least it is possible to disassemble him as he, as he was at his own creation, the real question is what would have to be done in order to preclude him from reassemblage. And I don't, if you knew that, Ozymandias would hire you to build it <laughs> and then would kill you because that's what he does with all of his people is he, he buries them in yes. the Great Wall when they're all done. One thing about reassembling himself is he says it's because he was a watchmaker mm-hmm. and he can reassemble things. And he talks about how he was originally a watchmaker. And um, and so did Einstein. Einstein has this famous quote, and they, ref- they actually include this in the end of one of the uh, issues in the Watchmen comic about Dr. Manhattan. And the quote is, the release of atomic power had changed everything except our way of thinking. The solution to this problem lies in the heart of mankind. If only I had known, I should have become a watchmaker. I think this is one of those uh, things that I love about this story is Alan Moore is so impressive with his ability to tie all these things together. But I think there's a mixed result because Dr. Manhattan is deployed by Nixon, at least, and his predecessors as a nuclear deterrent. And I think there's a mixed result about what that can achieve for U.S. security. So he's designed, his very name is designed to scare the Russians, to enforce them to no longer uh, follow through with their uh, adventurism, right? Um, But he still led Russia, because of this fear of Dr. Manhattan, into building more weapons. I think The movie references that the Russians had 51,000 warheads, which is more than they actually had in real life. So it seems like they're trying to build more weapons uh, to be able to prevent them. It, there is clearly some Soviet quote-unquote adventurism in Afghanistan despite this uh, walking nuclear deterrent. So Russia is still trying to test, much like in our world where we have nuclear weapons, but there was still these proxy conflicts Latin America, in Vietnam, in Korea, and in Afghanistan. So nuclear weapons aren't a panacea, neither is Dr. Manhattan against all of these things. And I think you see this most clearly in the Vietnam War side of this. So I would love to go through a little bit here about discussions that may have been taking place about whether or not to use nuclear bomb in the Vietnam War. Because in our world, we didn't. In their world, they did in the way of using, deploying Dr. Manhattan. A couple of things. You'll remember that you know part of what uh, leads to Lyndon Johnson achieving a historic uh, re-election is the suggestion by Barry Goldwater that nuclear weapons be used in Vietnam. Mm-hmm. And you know his explicit articulation of that, which we now know was also articulated by some of Johnson's own key advisors. Just not in public, yeah. But Johnson's response to them was the same as his, you know, essentially as his was to Goldwater, which was, no, 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 we're not going to do so that. So we, we get into that, uh, one of the episodes that Joel and I did mm-hmm. uh, right before the 2016 election, mm-hmm. We did an episode on the Daisy ad, which is this famous ad from that particular campaign about the little girl uh, picking flowers and then a bomb going off and saying, Barry Goldwater wants to cause this to happen to your child. Check that episode out if you really want to get into some of that stuff. You know, our first engagement in Vietnam is under Eisenhower. Mm -hmm. Some would argue Truman in terms of supplying to the French and keeping the communists at bay. If we are to believe the history of the Watchmen, Truman, Eisenhower, Kennedy, even Johnson, who loses public office as a direct result of not having achieved a victory or at least a ceasefire in Vietnam. None of them resort to 
the uh, employment of Dr. Manhattan, only Nixon. I think at one point there's an explicit uh, debate about whether or not JFK was going to use Dr. Manhattan in the Bay of Pigs, mm -hmm. and he decides, no, he's not going to, and then, of course, comedian assassinates him. Right, on behalf of whom we're not expressly Somebody. informed of, right? I think the illusion is certainly that Nixon could have been behind that as well. One of the critiques by Reagan supporters in 1976 against uh, both the Nixon and Ford administration when Nixon runs is this idea of Kissinger's uh, deployment of realpolitik. Mm -hmm. We want to achieve a manageable relationship with Russia, which is why we pursue arms, salt negotiations. We want to open up our relationship with China as a means of putting pressure on the Soviet Union mm -hmm. because they are competitors. But functionally, we're not interested in challenging their sphere of influence, right? We're not looking at repealing communism in Eastern Europe. We're not looking at, you know, utilizing the greatest, you know, asset in Vietnam, but they do. So that is the big conundrum about, okay, well, if they... Right. If they deploy Dr. Manhattan in Vietnam because they want to defeat the communist menace, forget Afghanistan. Why don't they simply you know, um, express terms to the leadership of the Soviet Union? He could have theoretically destroyed them all in one gesture. Mm -hmm. you know, and then does that lead to nuclear conflict or does that lead to a premature fall of the Soviet Union? Because there is certainly there's a Kissinger character in the comic book, yes. and there's an, a Kissinger impersonator in the movie, right. and that's and so you know that is a big cognitively dissonant element of the story, right? That you know there is a there is a conflation with Kissinger and his advocacy for total war in Cambodia and Vietnam, versus the idea of him, you know, being a fundamentally ardently opposed foe of communism, which the Reagan people certainly did not believe. The conservative wing of the Republican Party, they saw him as an accommodationist. Right. If Nixon and Kissinger are this willing to utilize Manhattan in order to win a tactical victory in Vietnam, then why wouldn't they utilize that same power to achieve a strategic victory over communism worldwide? Well, one one of the reasons why we we you know being the the United States used nuclear weapons where we didn't use them in Vietnam was there was concern about drawing Russia and China sure. into the conflict, right? The, there was a sense that nukes would be the thing that would bring them bring sure. them in on board. Um, there was debate between various people, like the people that were in favor of using nuclear weapons, McGeorge Bundy, National Security Advisor to these presidents, Kennedy and then Johnson. They thought there was plenty of targets within mm -hmm. Vietnam, bridges, you know, various infrastructure that mm -hmm. we could hit them and, and it would be lower human loss. So that same calculation that was made in World War II but then you had people like Secretary of State Dean Rust and then McNamara, who were very much opposed. And there was this uh, big report that came out in 1966 by the Jason Group, a very secretive uh, collection of scientists that put together a report that said, no, actually, there isn't a lot of targets. It's not a target-rich environment mm -hmm. for these types of weapons. So it's fascinating that this debate took place, but it's not really one that uh, seems like it took place in, in Nixon's Vietnam War in Watchmen. It's sort of like uh, the, 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 the situation with the Watchmen themselves, right? They don't go after the strategic yeah. narrative in which their reality exists. They're dealing with the events that are happening as they unfold. Same token, if Nixon is unconcerned about the you know deployment of Dr. Manhattan in Vietnam mm -hmm. in order to make a point, wouldn't that have engendered a much stronger response from the Soviet Union and China? If not, then why not send Dr. Manhattan to Beijing and Moscow and end this thing right quick? 
I think that's, you know, again, this, at a minimum, it points up the difference between a lot of the saber rattling and tough talk that you hear at times. Well, why don't we just, you know, bomb this or bomb that and our problems will be solved. Well, one of the characters says, why don't we just nuke Russia and then sort it out later? Yeah. Well, because it's never that simple. I mean, you know, yeah, yeah. you know. And we're also talking about weapons in our world that are very much, they, they're they inanimate objects. Uh-huh. They're things that we tell it what to do, you know, go off at this time and this and that. Um, but in this world, in Watchmen, Dr. Manhattan is oh, something, he's a person mm-hmm. who's supposed to develop some kind of connection to humanity and he's doing what he's doing for some reason. It's unclear about why he decides to shack up with Nixon mm-hmm. as opposed to just going on his own at right. any point. Maybe it's a connection to Lori. I know they talk about how uh, Lori and before her, uh, Janney, they put them together. And it almost seems a little bit like a hostage situation, but it's also, they say, to check Dr. Manhattan. At some point, maybe that's one of the reasons why he does some of the things that he does. I don't know. I, it's hard to make a sense of it, though. Yeah, because trying to justify how do you hold Janney and, and Silk's With his power. Yeah, uh, you know, hostage. Like. Either way, whoever, whatever control they think they have on him to say, all right, you know, I'm going to issue my order for you to go attack Vietnam. The further and further John, as Dr. Manhattan, gets away from humanity, that's not the thing you want to hear when it's these is the thing that you see your savior to save us. Uh, and I think this is reflected best if you only read a few things about Watchmen. Uh, there's this story within a story uh, written by uh, Professor Milton Glass, who was the director of Gilla Flats, the research center that Dr. Manhattan was working when he became Dr. Manhattan, uh, he talks uh, explicitly about how Dr. Manhattan's powers are working for the United States and they give us these great economic and security benefits, but they come at a great cost. So I like to quote a little bit from this story, which is called Dr. Manhattan, Superpowers and the Superpowers. It sounds like an article that I would that I would be titling here with my puns. Um, is a quote here that's great. There's little wonder then that the idea of a world run by omnipotent God King owing allegiance to the United States seems eminently desirable. By placing our superhuman benefactor in the position of a walking nuclear deterrent, it is assumed that we finally have guaranteed lasting peace on Earth. I do not believe that we have made a man, however, to end wars. I believe we had made a man to end worlds. And he goes on to talk a lot about why the Soviets, given their experience in World War II, they fought against what they thought was annihilation. They fought tooth and nail against the Germans more and more, and they, they essentially recognized a lose, losing situation and continued to fight. And so Milton Glass's argument is, is that this idea that we could just rely on Dr. Manhattan to just force the world to bend its knee is not reflective of what human history has shown us. And the more we rely on this as a tool, a savior for our security, the more likely it will create more enemies and the more likely it will make us overconfident and arrogant and the type of hubris that would lead to our downfall. This story in particular is like a crystal discussion of Dr. Manhattan as an atomic bomb. Last thing I want to ask you here is if you were a Kissinger figure, right? I know that's what you like to cosplay on the weekends. If you're Kissinger... Who, what would you advise Russia and China to do against this particular threat from Dr. Manhattan? Because I think it's one of those fun things that the story glosses over. The Russians are concerned about Dr. Manhattan, but they're still going about and doing things that would potentially lead Nixon to uh, to deploy Dr. Manhattan. Do they just feel that 
that is not credible? It's not a credible threat? Or how, do you, how would you advise the Chinese and the Russians or any one that's not America to deal with this? I'm assuming that Kissinger's message to them would not be altogether dissimilar to what it was to the North Vietnamese and Chinese during the Vietnamese peace talks, mm. which was, I am the rational actor. You don't want to have to deal with Nixon, right? Because he's he he'll, he'll call forth the B-52s and, and carpet bomb you. So I'm assuming that since obviously that's not the strategy they used to win the war in Vietnam, that that would be the strategy that they would use to unite Russia and China to their cause of containing or figuring out ways to contain or to otherwise uh, avert disaster at the hands of Dr. Manhattan. Hmm. Now, again, where this falls apart is if he's really as omnipotent as he is, then, you know, okay, the U.S., Russia, and China join forces. What are you going to do? Yeah. What are you going to do? The guy can materialize in your you know, bedroom in the dead of night, or he can materialize at the Politburo meeting, or he can materialize mm-hmm. the State of the Union and wipe everybody out. The, the, one of the saving graces about the way they approach Dr. Manhattan, which you know, at least to me intuitively makes sense, is that, look, if you are that omnipotent, mm-hmm. this is a very small place for you to hang your hat. Yeah, go hang out in... Andromeda. Right, or whatever. I mean, you know, explore the universe. You know, learn whether or not there is something at the center. Learn if there is some larger meaning. All of which it would seem to me, based upon what we are shown about Dr. Manhattan, would be far more interesting than worrying about whether or not things go well. Well, let's talk about our final nuke point here, which is uh, what maybe leads Dr. Manhattan into this self-imposed exile as a convenient plot point to wrap up. Uh, not only our podcast, but wrap up Manhattan's role in this story, of course, until before um, until the new stories come out, like Doc, the Doomsday Clock one. So I call this section the old proverb, uh, the enemy of my enemy is a monster ET and or radioactive deity, which is what unites the United States and the Soviet Union together. Uh, so we'll talk a little bit about Ozzy's plan. We already kind of mentioned a little bit of these points but also the, some of the bomb imagery that you see in the film I'd like to get into a little bit. So the in the comic book, the destruction of this, I can't even feel like I'm talking about this, it makes sense, uh, like a, some sort of psychic wave, killer, uh, dead, some sort of psychic squid. wave that comes out of a squid, yeah. That thing causes destruction, which is described in the comic as like Hiroshima, but with buildings. So it's like the, seems like a neutron bomb type deal. Uh, and in the movie, there's a number of bombs going off, I think like 10 to 15. Um, it's kind of hard to figure out just simply on imagery in terms of the vermicillitude of what we see for the movie. It's really hard to figure out how big the bomb is for that goes off in Manhattan. It seems like it goes off in Times Square. Um, but at the end of the movie, in a shot you see that's very reminiscent of, of 9-11 and Ground Zero, the Empire State Building is still perfectly fine. So that kind of gives you maybe a sense of how wide the destruction was uh, using NukeMap. I don't know if you've heard of NukeMap. It's our tool that we use on the podcast. It was created by a Professor Alex Wellerstein, uh, the Stevens Institute of Technology. It's something you can go on, uh, pick a, a, an aim point, no matter where it is in the world. You can pick the type of weapon, the type of bomb burst, and it will show you what the effects would be to really drive home what weapons can do. Uh, and you can see what the difference between like a Hiroshima-sized bomb of 15 kilotons can do versus a 20-megaton bomb. So using NukeMap, because uh, I'm not a scientist, I just play well on a podcast, I 
tried to find a yield size and an aim point that would make sense to describe this. So using a, a detonation point of time square, uh, trying to find something that wouldn't destroy the Empire State Building, which is about a mile or 10 blocks or so away from this. Even, this is my result, even the 15 kiloton Hiroshima bomb, uh, Little Boy, would have had some sort of impact that would have reached the Empire State Building with at least a 5 PSI blast wave, which would destroy most concrete buildings. Now, maybe it would knock it down, but there would be some sort of damage to it. Uh, but giving the benefit of the doubt, here's how I think this could work. The bomb seems to be underground, right? Like it's under Times Square for some reason. That's where you would have those, this reactor. Usually we take our reactors and nuclear power plants, put them a little bit further away from population centers. But uh, let's say that the city is very dense, so the blast wave doesn't go out very far, and it's underground. So if it was an air burst, the bomb would go out further. And most of the shock of this particular Mr. Manhattan, Dr. Manhattan bomb would be underground. But either way, I think the movie really just plays with our understanding of distance. So it, in the end of that movie, it's not really important because the Empire State Building is there, so it's recognizable to someone watching it. Oh, that's the Empire State Building. I've seen that movie. I've seen Sleepless in Seattle. I know what the Empire State Building looks like. So it shows you that this is New York. It should be gone. Um, but I think it's really important because it shows in the movie and in the comic itself, there are weapons in the megaton range that would level Manhattan, but they don't use it. So that's maybe a point to Ozymandias. He doesn't create a bomb that will level a city. He creates a bomb that just does the minimal level of effect, you know, only a couple million killed as opposed to billions. Maybe you don't think about this when you're watching the movie, but it's the kind of the nonsense things that I see and uh, annoy my friends with. So what would you say, like, do you think the bomb that was in the film, did it seem like it was huge or did it seem like it was small? And it seemed like it would what you would imagine a nuclear bomb would be, knowing that it's not actually a nuclear bomb, but that's the imagery. You know, it's it's tough to answer it, it with any sort of uh, logic to it. You know, I think that obviously it's more effective to, you know, sort of set these around to all the major cities as opposed to just trying to, um, you know, uh, provoke, say, for example, a missile launch. You know? mm -hmm. But uh, again. It, it, it sort of raises this issue of, well, if Manhattan, in the moment that he came to work for the Nixon administration, which is roughly nine years before the events in The Watchmen take place, because they talk, or not, well, almost 15 years, because they talk about Reagan running for president in 1984. Right. Well, that's in the... Uh, that's in the movie. In the movie. In the, in, the card, in the comic book, for some reason, it's Robert Redford. Right. There's lots of references to, will R.R. run in this time, and it's... It's Robert Redford, which is such a weird thing. I don't know why they did that, but it's one of the things that delights me to no end is that Robert Redford is the president. Yeah, so that is somewhat uh, odd. I, can't, I cannot really get my head around that. It seems to me that at the end of the day, uh, there are sort of three things. One, there is this question about why Dr. Manhattan doesn't go to the source. Two, there is this question around if it's just 10 to 15 devices, he could easily stop that. How do we know that? Because they've been talking about through the whole movie about how he could stop 99% of the 51,000 or whatever the number of. Yeah, I guess I guess the idea is that he didn't know about it, right? That he was on again, Mars and there's. Luis, there's, there's techions. Yes, everywhere. I, yeah, yeah. This is this is easily the weakest part yeah. of the film because you know even if he cannot see into the future, he can certainly identify the the flaws in the devices he is making. He can certainly d discern what Ozymandias's 
capacity for understanding those mm-hmm. flaws would be. And he could certainly discern what their utility might be for someone who, you know, at a minimum wanted to do bad things, even if they weren't to do bad things in order to serve a larger good. Right. So, you know, that that is to me where where this whole story like sort of lives or dies. Yeah, it's a tricky one. Well, I think even if you give him the benefit of the doubt that this plan made sense and it worked in the short term, the sequels to this almost immediately ripped this out of the out of the ground. In Doomsday Clock, this new series of comic book comics, they take place in 1992. Mm-hmm. So it's a couple years after uh, the events of Watchmen 8. And what we learn is that Adrian, as Ozymandias, was leading a global nuclear disarmament effort since 1988 that seems to be almost on the brink of succeeding. It's just in a, a news story. President Robert Redford campaigned on a nuclear-free proposal which would disarm the world's nuclear weapons over 20 years. And it, it lists off a couple different nuclear-armed countries that they say exist in 1992. And so some of the, the usual ones, like U.S., U.K., Russia, France, South Africa, and China. Um, South Africa got rid of its weapons uh, and announced it was going to in 1991, but maybe hadn't got gotten to it there yet. Maybe apartheid hadn't ended just yet. It also includes India, Pakistan, North Korea, and Israel on the list. Uh, North Korea didn't test its weapons in our world, at least, until 2006. There were rumors of a program in 1990s, but uh, I think this is kind of funny. Poor North Korea, when they have a map in this comic of all the countries that have nuclear weapons, and all the countries that don't are white, and the ones that do are black. Uh, North Korea, they leave off of the map. They don't include it, even though they say it has it. So So South Korea is an island? It just shows, shows North Korea and South Korea as like a block. And it has no weapons, though. But anyways, it doesn't get any respect. Uh, India did a, what they called a peaceful nuclear test in 1970s, but not until 1998 in our world did they test bombs along with, with Pakistan. So I guess in this comic book world, the, the world of Dr. Manhattan made them want to have it earlier. But anyways, that's probably just nitpicking. Uh, there's one weird thing, though, that I wanted to talk about. And sorry, I'm going to rant here for just a quick second by myself. There's this whole reference to Israel in the comic book about Israel uh, not agreeing initially to Ozymandias' plan for global nuclear disarmament or Robert Redford's plan for global nuclear disarmament. And they said it's because Israel doesn't acknowledge their nuclear arsenal, which is true. It's very much an opaque, we won't confirm or deny According to Doomsday Clock, it also is the same dynamic. They mention that Ozymandias is able to use his incredible intellect to to essentially solve this mystery. And he does it by revealing the what they call the Vela Incident, which is I think is hilarious. The Vela Incident is a is a real life uh, question about whether or not Israel might have tested its nuclear weapon uh, back in the day uh, in conjunction perhaps with South Africa. Because South Africa never tested their weapons. They had a uranium bomb, which was very simple. Uh, the Vela incident refers to a Vela Hotel satellite, which picked up a double flash in the Indian Ocean uh, between South Africa and Antarctica. Double flash sounds a lot like uh, some sort of feature on the new iPhone. Uh, but what actually it is, is a, usually a telltale signal of a nuclear test when it's conducted out in the atmosphere. Satellites are able to pick up these two different flashes, which usually a signal. There wasn't any other collaborating evidence. There wasn't any sort of radiation detected or anything picked up, radionuclides picked up with snifter airplanes when they would go through and try to grab some particles in the air. 
Uh, but the theory with many people is that that was a test with Israel and South Africa. Well, according to this, Adrian used his, quote, tenacity and his money to do global forensics to uncover the truth behind the mysterious event, forcing Israel to admit its nuclear arsenal. I just think that's kind of a fun detail. Why would you include such granular detail in this random, not even part of the comic book, like a, that's one of the appendixes at, at the end of one of the comic book issues. I don't know. I just think that's kind of funny. But the point is, is that there's this nuclear disarmament movement out there. Some countries are for it, but eventually everybody gets on board, uh, including the Soviet Union, which resisted for a while under Gorbachev. But surprisingly, it was the people and the, maybe the elites within the Soviet Union that said, no, let's disarm all of our weapons, forced Gorbachev to resign. The Soviet Union collapsed. And Boris Yeltsin comes into power in favor of nuclear disarmament. But the point I would love to say here is that what would they possibly use against the aliens if they're trying to fight this secret alien invasion, which they claim is going to happen at some point in the future? I don't know what kind of weapon you're going to use against them. Maybe they're hoping that Dr. Manhattan in the comics uh, will come back at some point and save them. But I don't know. I just think it's kind of interesting. And the last little bit of thing I want to rant on, please, is that uh, Adrian has this program called the Global Data Exchange Program. And one of the people, the very beginning of this, the Doomsday Clock comic says, well, it's because of Adrian's uh, in transparency initiatives that we are basically sitting ducks. The Russians know where all of our bombs are. We're screwed. Uh, therefore, we need to start launching immediately because of this global transparency initiative. Well, as someone who works and studies on nuclear issues and is a big proponent of verification, the verification of global nuclear disarmament efforts and arms control agreements, that's what I wrote my thesis in grad school, I'm a big proponent of those types of technologies and how those are good ideas, that one hit a little close to home. I can't believe they would uh, they would do that to me. Uh, these kind of transparency initiatives, these are the kind of things you want to keep in place because they maintain nuclear deterrence. It tells the other side that we have this many weapons, so therefore you don't need more than this number to meet your security needs. And also, we want the other side to know where all of our land-based missiles are because we want them to be targeted by the other side's forces. If they didn't know where our missiles were, they could just launch at American cities instead. So we tell them where this, these things are. They're not that hard to find. Find. You can pull up on the internet and search where all of the U.S. nuclear missiles at. They're going to tell you. They're not going to tell you where the submarines are in the ocean, most likely, uh, but they'll tell you where all of the missiles and all of the bomber bases are at because we want them to be targeted in the event of a nuclear war. So I was going to talk a little bit about whether or not the two plans, the comic book plan or the movie plan, made sense, but I think we already talked about that. So, you know what? Let's play a game. Shall we play a game? All right, so that was enough uh, depressing, dark nuclear discussion. Let's play a quick game to brighten up the, the mood here. And hey, old podcast host Joel is here. The listeners have missed you on the podcast. Gabe has tried his best to account for your whereabouts. I hear I'm well-traveled. I, I, I make it to a lot of different uh, places. But I have been uh, listening along the way, so it's been cool to see uh, Gabe and some of your uh, additional guests coming on. And uh, yeah, so congrats on the long-standing podcast well it's a good thing you're here because we talked about today about watchmen and mm -hmm. you and i and luis due to luis's insistence and i'm glad he did got us to watch watchmen now we're going to test our metal here how much we remember about the genre that is comics and its interconnections with nuclear things so here's my little rundown here the dawn of the atomic age was pretty good fodder for comic book writers who put a ton of superheroes with nuclear origin stories or atomic superpowers. Some of them were great, others were ridiculous. So today we will play a round of the classic game, Supercritical Superheroes. 
I will tell you a superhero or a supervillain origin story and their superpowers. And you will tell me whether or not this is a real comic book character or just something that I made up. Example. High school student is bit by a radioactive bug. Spider-Man. Letting him do whatever a spider can. See, here whoa, whoa, we go. We haven't started yet. <laughs> we haven't started yet. So buzz in with your name when I'm done with the powers section. If you get it right, you get one point. If you get it wrong, you get a negative point. And you can earn one bonus point if you can actually tell me the name of the superhero when it is a real superhero. I have 17 of them. It sounds like a lot, but we can go through them through pretty quickly. Uh, and then the prize for today will be a Lego figurine in the shape and image of Dr. Manhattan. Only down to the torso, though. <laughs> no, he's, it's very respectable. It's very respectable. I'll post a picture of that on our Twitter page so you can see what the prize looks like. All right, so we ready to get started? Yes. All right, first one. Made from a strand of Superman's hair and a dash of nuclear ICBM, this character has super strength and flight and can inflict radiation sickness by merely scratching you. Oh, uh, Luis. Uh, Pluto. So you say it's, so is it real or fake? No, it's a, it's a, it's a real dog or it's a superhero dog, <laughs> whatever. So your, 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 your answer is real and real. his name is Pluto. Wrong! Yes. Uh, unfortunately it is real. That is Nuclear Man from Superman 4, oh. The Quest for Peace. Mm -hmm. I don't know if anyone else has seen that delightful film about Wait, no one, do not go see it. It's not worth seeing it. I'm pretty <laughs> sure all right, so Luis got it right in a weird way, saying that it was right, but not that it was the, that person. So that still counts, though. Okay, so the next one. <clears throat> After working on a sample of uranium-235 following the detonation of the first atomic bomb, this character becomes a superhero with the goal of stopping people from using uranium for illegal purposes. Immune to all forms of radiation and impervious to gunfire, flame, and electricity, he can see radiation waves, produce gamma radiation from his right hand. Unclear what he can do with his left. Real or fake? Luis. Uh, real Gamma Man. Wrong! <laughs> it is real, but his name is Adam Man. Oh, Adam Man. And whose real name is Adam Man. M-A-N-N. -N. <laughs> uh, it's gotta be a DC comic, right? Well, he was the first superhero of the Atomic Age. Basically, as soon as the bomb came about, they're like, we need okay. to write something about this guy. So uh, it was a Thursday afternoon... Jerry was like, uh, my editor needs something. And he put it together pretty quick. Not so productive. Creative. All right, next one. During a holiday party at Los Alamos National Laboratory, a nuclear weapon designer has one too many drinks and tries to make out with a nuclear warhead Joel. prototype. This causes her to mutate into an anthropomorphic Joel. nuclear bomb Joel. and swear vengeance on the U.S. military. Joel. Yes. Fake? Answer, yes. That is fake. I decided to add some character names to these, <laughs> and this one is Ballistic Mistletoe. <laughs> not, not good names, I see. Just, uh, I mean, it's right better, there with Adam so it was better than Friday Adam Man. Yeah. And he was like, I really don't have anything. Uh, all right, so thank you, Joel, for that. Uh, try to wait until I'm done all the way through so we can get through this oh, creative writing that I'm working on. No, we got we got to go by we got to go by Jeopardy rules here. It's just you buzz yeah. it. Yeah. Oh, okay. Get, okay. In all fairness, two syllable name, one syllable name. Mm. So, <laughs> just in terms of like time, I want to make sure. We're Fair, enough. Fair enough. I have no excuses when he beats me. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Next one. A regular working Joe at a nuclear power plant is exposed to nuclear waste and gains powers. He isn't too happy when his radiation sweat kills his parents. But at least he doesn't have to live in the basement anymore. Joel. 
What you got? Fake. Wrong! His name is Nuke, and he is very real. Ah! Uh, wait, his tears killed his parents? His, he's, his radiation sweat killed his oh, parents. Uh, he can shoot radiation from his hands and fly. That's dark. And make shockwaves. <laughs> I know, right? Well, that's what turns people into supervillains. That kind of stuff. I mean, he was on the elliptical, and his parents, they weren't going to last. <laughs> they never saw it coming. Next. Noticed she had radioactive powers after putting her boyfriend into a coma with a super critical kiss. Stop. Uh, Luis. <laughs> Stop. <laughs> Would you like to hear the powers? Rogue from X-Men. Wrong! Uh, it is a real person, but it, her name is Hazmat. She may, may have heard if you would just waited a second. She can produce EMP blasts at will, so she's good for fighting robots. And she exudes toxic and radioactive chemicals from her skin. Much like Nuke, she must wear a containment suit at all times. So real, but I got it wrong. Okay. Yes. I, I, I feel so like I, I want to give like you I'm negative points for this. You but get the point. I'm, getting, I'm getting half points. I'm racking up the half yeah. points. Okay. All right. So what do we got? Score check here. Three, Luis. One, Joel. Yeah. But all of mine uh, are half points. Joel has a negative one. Negative all, all, one. All, of my, all of my right answers are half points, so really it's only one. <laughs> well, let's keep, let's keep going. We'll see how this plays out. Next one. A high school student and a Nobel Prize winning nuclear physicist are fused together after a nuclear weapon accident. They're roommates in the same mind and try to stop the nuclear arms race. They can manipulate matter and energy at the molecular level and also have the usual powers like flight, superhuman strength, and the ability to become intangible. Real or fake? Luis, fake. Wrong! Luis, that is a real character. Its name is Firestorm. Wow. I have the first issue of this hanging on my rumpus room wall, in case you're... Maybe you didn't see the tour of the house. Unfortunately, you would have seen that on the wall. I love how they like go through the powers. And they go, oh, and you can fly, and you can do this, and you can do this. You can also not be. Yep. And pretty it's much. Like, we can not be tangible. It's like, it's not bad. How philosophical. Sometimes you want to unwind and just get intangible after a little while, right. after a long day. All right, next one. A member of the elite nuclear bomb disposal team, Nest, is exposed to radiation during a training exercise. He is now blind but has his enhanced hearing and touch to become the world's best bomb disposal expert slash safecracker. Real or fake? Joel, I'm going to say real because it sounds real. Wrong! Well, thank you. I would love to get the, the writing credit for oh, it, no. but it is fake. Oh. However, I did name this person the Blue Wire. <laughs> All right. You got a hidden talent, Tim. <laughs> uh, next. <laughs> Next, after participating in an experiment to avoid execution for a crime he did not commit, he is exposed to a nuclear test. Obviously, now he has superpowers. Radioactive ability to manipulate energy, create shields. He can also manipulate the quantum field, which is pretty handy in a pinch. Real or fake? Joel, real. Answer, yes. Correct. What is the character's name? Uranium man. <laughs> Captain Adam. Captain Adam. I mean, that was in the ballpark. Yeah, it's not bad. <laughs> can I just ask, why, if you can come up with whatever name you want for a superhero, why did they go so low in the rankings as Captain? <laughs> I mean, there's General. There's General anything, <laughs> there's anything between Captain and, uh, and Field Marshal Adam. <laughs> yeah. I think they want to have something to work towards. Okay, that's possible. I'll give you that. Like our next character... 
A Russian victim of the Chernobyl nuclear power plant meltdown, this person becomes a Soviet superhero, including energy powers, matter manipulation, that one keeps coming up, and can turn himself into an all-consuming fire. Real or fake? Who wants to jump on this one? Luis, real. What's the character's name? Uh, Red Star. Answer, yes. Ooh, that's not bad. Uh, it is real. The character's name is Pozar? P-O-Z-H-A-R. I can't really pronounce that one. Pozar. But the cool thing about this guy... it is Pozar. Pozar. He later merged with Firestorm. So even another level of combined characters. And if anyone watches the TV show Legends of Tomorrow, it's like a, one of those Arrow, Green Arrow, Flash oh. Universe things on CW. He's in the episode called Failsafe, which is another oh, nuclear movie. So... I don't know anything about this character, but he's a real person, and Luis knew at least that that character existed. <laughs> I, I, I think we should really modify the notion that it's a real person, just like <laughs> a real character, because we don't want the listeners to think that we are so removed from reality that we think these are real. <laughs> real in our imaginations, much like <laughs> this character. Real to us, okay? <laughs> an, this character is an archer who was practicing at the 1980 Moscow Olympics and accidentally pierces a barrel of radioactive waste with his arrow, causing his bow arm to glow green and gain superhuman strength and dexterity. Now, he's never missed an arrow shot since the accident, but because his radioactive arm is considered a performance-enhancing substance, he was banned from the Olympic Joel. competition. False. Or fake. What, the, the, you think character. he was fake, fake news about his uh, performance-enhancing drug, or he's not a real character? He's not a real character. Answer, yes. Correct. Uh, but I did name him the Green Glow instead of the Green Arrow. Mm, not, as my, not my best work. Day job. <laughs> Keep it. But Joel earned a point there. Good work. You got the score for us update, Jen? Uh, we have Joel with plus three and minus two. It's a one. One. And Luis is plus uh, four and minus one. Luis has three and Joel has one. Plenty of time to catch up, though. So use this one wisely, Joel. After a gamma radiation bomb... Luis. The Incredible Hulk. Answer, yes. That is correct. Oh, come on. This is, I, I tried to hide this one, but he heard the word gamma. This was uh, early versions of the Hulk, so it wasn't like an experiment. It was an, a, a gamma bomb that went off too close, and his superpowers are super strength and low IQ. Uh, so he earns... And he can jump... At, and he can jump. Fly, at, yeah. at the equivalent of flight. Yeah, not bad. Like the original super Superman type of flying, which was just that he could leap really far. Yeah, but he's basically yeah. a, an id, un, unleashed. So with the the poodle, right? <laughs> and does the poodle show up? That's a uh, second half of the movie we don't talk about. <laughs> All right, so that helps out with the lead quite a bit there. So now Joel really has to swing for the fences. Mm. When the pilot of a heavy bomber accidentally releases an atomic bomb off the coast of an American city. He is racked with guilt and decides to ride another atomic bomb out of the bomb bay door to his certain doom. Due to magical forces, our hero is fused with the atomic bomb, which he uses to fly and fight crime. Joel. That was interesting to listen to. I'm pretty <laughs> sure it's a fake character. Answer, yes. It is a fake character, inspired by Dr. Strangelove. This character's name is Major Wahoo Kong. That's one point right. for you. Not bad, not bad. Because Slim Pickens wasn't, wasn't good enough. Well, the, the choices for this were Slim Pickens. <laughs> All right, next. After being exposed to nuclear waste, running theme here, 
A wise old man adopts four kids and turns them into killing machines. Luis. Uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Answer, yes. Correct. Two points. <laughs> okay, I want to challenge that. <laughs> I don't think we ever saw them murder anyone. We've uh, seen them kill robots. In the original comics, they, they slice and dice. My point of reference and authority on it is a cartoon. Hmm. In well, you would have gotten they this. Already, they, <laughs> well, they never the used their weapons. Vision is the cartoon. Well, if you would you would have gotten it if I would have added the the powers list of enhanced dexterity, hard shell exoskeletons, martial arts skills, and insatiable hunger for was pizza. Was it nuclear waste though? Well, it's radioactive waste. It's okay. it's interesting. It's that same story or origin of Daredevil. So right. the same radioactive waste accident that causes Matt Murdock to get his powers yeah. is the oh, exact same right. day time, and accident. Right? Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Pretty interesting stuff. Mm -hmm. Not in the, uh, the cartoon or anything, just in, I think in the comics. Right. Next. A baby living near a nuclear test site in the 1960s drinks, this is sad, milk contaminated with radioactive isotopes, gives the baby superpowers and its parents a headache. The baby can let out a supercritical cry which Lex Luthor uses to confuse Superman's super hearing abilities as an alternative to Luis. kryptonite. <laughs> I'm going to say that I mean, you say Lex Luthor, which is clearly a real villain or a comic, real comic book villain, mm -hmm. which indicates that this is real, but... Uh, uh, but I just uh, picture Tim at like uh, 2 o'clock in the morning be like, okay, so... <laughs> It's, it's, a, it's a baby, right? Yeah. They're not going to expect a baby. I'm going to say... I'm, well, Superman's gonna, baby I'm has superpowers. Yeah, I'm going to say fake. Answer, yes. It is I fake. The fake name, though, I gave to this was Yo Gamma Gamma. Instead of Yo Gabba Gabba. Wow. I had a lot of fun with this. Yeah, okay. 2 a.m. <laughs> That's actually not that far off. All right, so the last couple here, I think Louise has this one in the bag. But now this is just about your pride, Joel. I'm just having fun. Just having fun. Teenager is exposed to nuclear waste, illegally dumped at a skate park. It turns him and his skateboard into superheroes that battle bullies and corporate polluters. His skateboard can float on atomic waves, and he can cut down opponents with 90s catchphrases. Joel, is it real? And what's the character's name? Is it the Toxic Avenger guy? Wrong! No, unfortunately it's fake. But its name is Radical. Radical. Okay. Uh, no, I almost put Intoxic Avenger in there, but I couldn't tell if that was just waste byproduct, I think it was. Not really nuclear waste, but maybe it was. I haven't dipped myself into that literature too much. The canon. <laughs> All right. Uh, the last two. After surviving a nuclear bomb explosion, he gains powers and a sidekick named Fallout Boy and battles the communist bloc. Joel. It is real from The Simpsons. What's the character's name? Um, Radioactive Man. Answer, yes. Two points to Joel. Yeah. Well done. Well done. Superhuman <sighs> strength, invulnerability to injury, especially close. when wearing his safety goggles. Or not. I guess it depends on how you interpret those scenes. Watch out, Radioactive Man. <laughs> or was it Lookout? It's an episode where he, he plays like a... Yeah, we'll go to the... Millhouse? Yeah, we'll yeah. go to the tape on that one. Okay. All right, the last one. When a major crime boss has an accident while smuggling enriched uranium into Pakistan, his skin glows green and he emits radiation steam out of his ears. He has x-ray vision, which is really helpful for telling when people are wearing a wire, and he has the ability to withstand radiation, which makes him an ideal supplier of nuclear material on the black market. Real or fake? 
this was a character in The Wire, right? <laughs> I remember. Deleted scenes. I think Luis is holding out because he's got the lead here. Smart play. <laughs> I'm just going to go for it. What do you got? Let's say it was a real comic book character. What would that comic book character's name be? I'm trying to think. You said he he was green? Yeah, it's green glow, radiation steam coming out of his ears. The the only person who comes to mind is like the Mandarin or something. Wrong! Uh, Well, it's fake. I made it up. And this crime boss's name is Don Neutron. (laughs) So, Joel, uh, thanks for coming back. um, But you were soundly defeated by Luis. I'm I'm banished, right? (laughs) The the losers on these uh, usually get kicked out, right? You're being sent to the Phantom Zone. We'll see you in uh, six months. All right. Congratulations, I'm not, Louise. I'm not sure how much pride I'm supposed to take <laughs> in this contest. Well, take, you do get a trophy that you have to take home. Take right, your what? little Lego character and, uh, well, enjoy. Congratulations. Tim, it's good to be back with you. Luis. Joel, always a pleasure. Always a pleasure. Here, now, and always. Exactly. Out of time. Bye-bye. All right, so the game is over. Luis has dominated Joel. But we're going to lead into our final bit of stuff here, our parking lot movie discussion. And what this is, you know, we went and saw this movie, even though we didn't have cars and we went to the metro instead. Parking lot movie discussion is we're done with the film. We're hanging out in the parking lot. And we're just chit-chatting about what we liked, what we didn't like about the film. Nuke stuff is over. We're just kind of talking generally about the film. So I I think uh, questions like, is this a good story? Is this uh, too bleak of a take on human nature? And maybe our our favorite uh, characters and themes are, I would love to hear your thoughts on on this. So generally speaking, uh, I prefer good film presentation to a fictional literary context i think that hmm. that's I, I you know i haven't read the game of thrones books but i love the show okay i haven't read the walking dead graphic but i love the show and so you know i did read uh the watchman because i, I read it in the time in, in which it you know, initially came out and i would say that the part where they really lost me was around the the intergalactic squid yeah you know so it's quite striking i, I much prefer the film in that context much of of any movie's power is a function of the performances that are given. Mm-hmm. And is it the best movie made? Absolutely not. For me, I would say that I, I'm I'm much more generous in my praise of it for three reasons than most other viewers. Mm-hmm. Number one, it really comes back to the question about the archetypes and how the deconstruction of these archetypes within a quote-unquote real-world context I just find very compelling. The second thing is, is that um, the idea that heroes are constrained by human flaws is the reason why like Marvel versus DC Comics, or at least the ones that occurred before Frank Miller's reinvention of, of the Dark Knight. Yep. I, I was about to respond, but that's exactly the point. Yeah. yeah. And, then, and, then the, and then the third aspect is um, that while I have a problem with sort of the way they deal with the, the climax of this, look, as with all works of fiction, especially those that are sort of pseudoscience fiction, I have a fairly relaxed notion about trying to solve the situational contradictions mm-hmm. uh, based upon the realities that they themselves have created. Because at some point, you can paint yourself into a corner around what you want to convey versus what you have already stated. Okay, I, I would not disagree with most of your characterization of how Snyder kind of executes works. Uh, he's very good at 
adapting imagery. I think that we talked about that. He knows he'd be one of the best uh, cinematographers if he wasn't just simply a, a, a director. He's very good at, at creating those images. And the problem where he has is connecting that to a theme, even in terms of ad- adaptation. I think where this story kind of suffers a little bit, and I think maybe people who's, who read this book and then watched the film maybe came into the story and were able to kind of follow and bring what they knew about the story from the comic into the movie and appreciated what was happening. I didn't really appreciate any of the themes that were going on other than just the traditional comic book characters fighting each other thing uh, until I had read the comic. So because I went that in reverse order, it makes me appreciate the comic much more than, and really all of the execution problems of the film kind of hit me hard that way. But I don't think it's as bad as people think. I think there are, are clearly plot issues that are present in both the movie and the comic, and it's a question of simply degrees. People often complain in a world where Dr. Manhattan lists all these bombs off, what would the world be like uniting? It doesn't make a lot of sense why the world would unite against this person who's no longer there anymore, and there's kind of issues resolved in that. But I think there's those same questions when it comes to the squid monster thing. Like, it, why would the Soviet Union help the United States against this thing unless there's evidence that there's more coming and how long would that last? Those are all questions I think that are, if you really want to get to that problem and fight over both of these two works of art but i think where both film and comic succeed is that's not really what people should be focusing on you know that if i wanted to be an elitist on my own front what you should be focusing on is the the story the metaphor of what is acceptable actions for countries to take for people to take you know do ends justify the means all these basic kind of a priority questions are explored very well in the comic and in the movie itself. And, and the two best examples of that for me in terms of the points that you just made are Dr. Manhattan uh, and uh, the comedian. And the reason for that is, is that, you know, what both Dr. So what Dr. Manhattan explicitly raises is this question of how much power should we invest in ourselves that we would reasonably believe that we are capable of mm-hmm. deploying in a, an appropriate manner. In the case of the comedian, what is our level of self-awareness about what has happened leading us to the point where we're making this decision? And to what extent does that background inform the decision we should make? Because I think, you know, leaving out sort of comedian's role in which, you know, he is clearly like the most anti-hero, quote-unquote, hero that we've seen in some time, he he is the repository of our collective societal and national sins. He not only embodies them, he owns them, he revels in them, and they are his motivation for going forward. And he is fine with the sort of like narrative cover of Hmm. overall virtue, so long as that provides him with license to carry out what he wants to do. That is a far tougher question to deal with, I think, in reality than in the reflection of of fiction. Hmm. And, you know, it informs a lot of the contemporary struggles that we see in terms of societal narratives today. And the connection between Watchmen and the comedian to The Walking Dead, Mm -hmm. same actor, is now playing Negan. I think another person who wasn't very happy with something was Alan Moore. He has criticized not only the movie, he said he wanted nothing to do Mm -hmm. with it. 
he only signed off on it so that David Gibbons, the illustrator, could get a paycheck mm-hmm. uh, every couple of months when this is shown on TNT mm-hmm. or something. Or maybe not TNT, maybe too graphic for that. Uh, but Alan Moore wasn't even too happy with Watchmen, the comic, and the effect that it had as a one of the most influential comic books ever. Mm-hmm. And Dark Knight... It's a contemporary. Yeah, it's contemporary. came out roughly around the same time. Yeah. So you can, you can argue that this was like a double whammy. But Watchmen, he's argued, too many writers took what they learned by watching and, and seeing the response to Watchmen, that bloodthirsty superheroes were the way to go. He said that people would look at Rorschach and would say, that's a really fascinating character. I'm not really going to get into the approach to storytelling because he's very creative and innovative and how he combines uh, time jumps and flashbacks and structure and all these different things, like this running motif of time. You may read it the first time and, and not really get it. It took me two run-throughs of the comic to be like, this is really intricate. It's almost like, uh, you know, I would say the George R. R. Martin books, like how intricate upon a reread, you can kind of start to see connections develop early on. He said that one of the things that people liked was Rorschach. This guy's really violent. He's a sociopath. Let's Therefore, let's make all of our characters sociopaths. And he wasn't too happy about that. He said, for a long time, looking at comics was like being in a hall of mirrors in a fun fair where you can only see the ugly, distorted reflections of yourself. Like He didn't appreciate how much this effect in the direction that his comic led. Well, what's really fascinating to me about that is that, you know, he is also the the author of uh, V for Vendetta. Mm-hmm. And the whole uh, scene or the, the situation in which V tortures his, his acolyte, mm-hmm. his friend, the only person who has invested any real faith or trust in him or that he has invested in himself. He tortures her with the express belief that only by doing so will she truly reach enlightenment and therefore understand and be able to carry through. I mean, it's a dark, dark representation of where a hero goes. It is this narrative that says, I know that I am a monster and I take responsibility for the actions which I am about to unleash as a function of my, of, of, of what I believe the world should look like. I also know that in order for that world to survive, I cannot be a hero. Which is a direct contrast to Ozymandias, who says, great but silly scene where Dr. Manhattan walks into the room where Ozymandias is like meditating. Mm -hmm. He's sitting cross-legged and he's like, I will force myself to feel the death of every person. I will look on their face. I feel guilty. But in the end, I was right. Right. Right? And so he believes that he will use this to build... A stronger universe and I, my favorite line in the entire story is he turns to dr manhattan and says you know i would you agree that i was right in the end mm-hmm. and dr manhattan responds oh adrian there is no end nothing ends right which is you could say it's a reflection on the fact that these stories keep going on there's a prequel there's a sequel but there's also it's a the same thing about nuclear weapons is that we can say nuclear weapons deter conflict let's say that's an assumption but how long? Mm-hmm. It has deterred it so far. So right. we then extend that faith into the millennium. And I think from what leads me to want to be an advocate for a world without nuclear mm-hmm. weapons is simply the cost of failure is world-ending. And I don't believe I have the faith in nuclear deterrence, even though I think it works in certain places, that I will extend that out forever. So at a certain point, we have to make a decision to do something about this. And it's not because it's not, the solution isn't to build new ones. It's not to bomb the countries that have them. So only we have them. That doesn't work. So then you have to do something. And I think that is. Missile (laughs) defense. 
Mr. Manhattan-based missile defense is the way to go. We have to do something. But one thing I want to end with is I would like to say one thing that uh, I like about the comic and the stories and the one thing that I don't like. Mm-hmm. So I'll start with the thing I don't like. And this gets me, and I wish it didn't because I, I'd love – I wish I liked everything about this, but I, I don't I don't have to and I don't need to. The pirate comic within a comic of the story and the, and the comic – there's this like running thing where there's a comic that's supposed to parallel – uh, the story of Ozymandias. And stuff, but it's so distracting mm-hmm. in the comic book that every time I come across it, I just skip it. Yeah. And it, it disrupts it. And I know I'm not supposed to. It's so popular that if you buy the extended edition of the movie, <laughs> either they can interplay that into the film, which I would find really annoying, oh. or you can have it as a separate yeah. thing on YouTube. I can't get past how much that frustrates me. Yeah, no, I, I didn't feel that the execution of that in the comic... I, I was very happy that that was not included in the in the film version. For me, the the thing that I and I, I mentioned this earlier, the thing that I wrestle with the most is the whole uh, origins of uh, Silk Spectre Two. Mm, uh. I have a real, I, I find that very challenging on a variety of levels. You know, both in terms of my own political beliefs, but also I think it is possible to understand the comedian and to impute him with. A sense of humanity, as distorted as it may be, mm-hmm. without it, right? And it is clearly intended to like make us say, "Oh, you know, there's a little bit of good in him." Like, oh, he was, God, he was, like a, he was a distant father yeah, that yeah. wanted to have more with his kids. Yeah, or I mean, you know, like, I mean, I just found that that I, that that thing I find entirely absurd, and and unfortunately, I think that it is it is the case that because so much of the comic world uh, is, you know dominated by a particular demographic you right. know, those stories are usually the ones that seem either the least um uh, viable within the universe created itself that has mm-hmm. been created for itself or the most almost denigrating in the way that they're they're executed so, you know superhero uh lore mythology it has certainly you know really expanded mm-hmm. and has become much more relatable and and in becoming more relatable is also more reflective of the world that we inhabit it transitions really well to my last little bit series what do i enjoy most about the stories and i even though i don't like the comic within mm-hmm. a comic i really enjoy the fact that the comic version of watchmen has a lot of really good small characters mm-hmm. that have interesting story the one i like the most is the budding relationship between the newspaper salesman and the young child who sits by the fire hydrant and reads this comic within a comic. They have little conversations here and there, but they eventually recognize that they not only do they have similar interests, they have the same name. Mm-hmm. They're both named, I think it's Bernie, mm-hmm. um, Bernard, Bernie. Mm-hmm. And they come to this realization right before the uh, squid or the bomb yeah. goes off. Uh, and then they embrace kind of together as this bomb is going off um, in the similar symbolism to the silhouette the Hiroshima shadow silhouette you see. I think those are great examples of characters that this story didn't really need, but it benefits it that they exist. And it creates a very good world of the anxiety of the public and not just this, our quote-unquote superheroes, the elites. Mm-hmm. That are- yeah, and you know, that, that story really is not touched upon at all in, in the movie in any in no. any significant way. Imagery-wise, and, but not the yeah, details yeah. of the, it. The very important imagery with it when the bomb actually explodes And this is, is why it's like the Snyder thing. It's like they wants the imagery. Right. It's the same thing. If you listen to our episode on Batman vs. Superman, mm-hmm. it's that same thing. He wants the imagery from The Dark Knight Returns 
of Superman with a bomb exploding mm-hmm. in space and floating and coming back down to Earth, but it's devoid of the meaning behind it mm-hmm. and the context. He just wants that to happen in Batman vs Superman, and it it's just this random scene that has nothing to do with the rest of the story, and it. I don't know. It's well, uh, it, de- it degrades, I think, the story in an unfortunate way. And again, you know, I mean, I'm sure that some of your listeners will, will find this to be too PC for, for <laughs> their taste. But, you know, I'm struck by the fact that here is a story that takes place entirely in New York City and takes place over a 40-year period of time. And the only there are only two people of color that we really have any interaction with. One is the Vietnamese woman, the, the comedian, uh, both... Um, uh, Pregnates and murders, and the other is the psychiatrist who's treating Rorschach. And beyond that, uh-huh. uh, and and the kid who again is not really spelled out in the film in any meaningful way. There's a important image, but you know that's it. Uh, you know, and, and and to me that is very reflective of the times in which this story is written. It's in the 1980s. Mm. Uh, there's a real segregation in terms of you know cultural expositions and it runs throughout film right, right. music etc and so you know that that i find really striking and you know over two three generations of heroes wow not even one well right in doomsday clock the mm-hmm. sequel rorschach yeah. is back but rorschach is african-american and, and you know I, I think that's great because i think that you know the way that we adapt and sort of you know there's not since we've never seen well we have seen rorschach therefore I'm not sure how we make that transition, but at the end of the day, these are fictional characters inhabiting a fictional world, right. and we can you know do with them as we see fit. The the, all, the only point I would make is that you know I certainly, as I've said, I I enjoyed this movie in spite of those things. But if you if you were to ask me like what are one of the things that I take issue with, that certainly is one. Of them. You have beat us really well into our last thing we'll do. Um, our rating system. Uh, you already kind of previewed this a little bit, but we normally rate things one out of five uh, so that it's a consistent scale across all the things we talk about. Mm-hmm. But we also like to tailor it to exactly the content that we're, we're mentioning. We hit super critical about the, the content. We want to make sure we get super mm-hmm. critical about the rating system. So I think for here, how about one out of five minutes away from midnight on the doomsday clock? <laughs> if you're if you're one minute away, that's a pretty bad spot to be. Mm-hmm. But if you're five minutes, that at least buys you some time to cross a few items off your bucket list mm-hmm. uh, before the end of the world. So we can rate, if you want to, the comics and the movie separate. I think that's fair. Mm-hmm. Uh, I will quickly say I'll give the movie a three and the comic a 4.5. I think the comic isn't perfect, but it's, it's so unique in how it combines and meshes all of these very intricate themes together. I am really impressed by it. Um, and even though it has these effects that Moore doesn't like about it's on the rest of superheroes, I think um, I'm happy that in general the the arc of comic books have bent in that direction. And the movie, uh, it's simply execution things. It's a movie that I think I enjoyed when I watched it. Uh, I It's very long, which is fine, but it's so long that it's hard to introduce new people to it. Mm-hmm. It's not an easy introduction, which is hard because I wish it was a little bit easier to, to, to follow, to understand, and it's in on all these things so that people would read the comics mm-hmm. a little bit further. How would you rate either of those two things? So I, I would probably rate them closer together. I would say, you know, the graphic novel, because it came first, because it is uh, has so much more depth to it, and despite intergalactic squid nonsense... <laughs> You know, it is a game-changing uh, piece of work, and so I would put that at a 4.0. I don't get to 4.5 uh, 
largely because of the squid and the pirate story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, um, and then in terms of the film, you know, I would rate it a, a 3.5. And that is because, you know, I feel that it really does bring to life the essential elements of the story. There are a couple things that, frankly, I think could have been uh, highlighted a little bit more, the more explicit nature around the nuclear uh, question to being chief among them. Mm-hmm. There are other things which are more a function, I think, of the culture and the times in which the the, the comic and therefore the the movie conveys the the representation of the deconstruction of of superhero archetypes. Again, uh, is just something that I just find really fascinating and compelling, and you know, I think that this is the most important work to that in all the other things. That Normally, we recommend things if someone liked. Watchmen, uh, or if they liked parts of it but wanted to explore more, I usually list off a couple of things that I think people can homework afterwards. If you like this, you like that, uh, it's like a Netflix rating system. I don't know if you have anything. I think you already mentioned uh, Atomic Cafe, uh, which I think would be something people should check out as that discussion about using nuclear weapons in Vietnam. Um, so I don't know if you have anything else, so maybe you could think about it if you have any more. But I have three things I would like people to check out. One is easy. The Doomsday Clock timeline on the Bulletin of Atomic website tells you every time it was updated and the context at the time and the reason behind that change. And I think if you just read that one page on this website, it'll give you a good sense of what the clock is and a good history lesson on on nuclear weapons uh, over time and how close we were to nuclear war. The second is an anthology collection called Countdown to Midnight. 12 Great Stories About Nuclear War, edited by H. Bruce Franklin in 1984. So a couple years before uh, Watchmen came out, it's an anthology collection of science fiction stories about the bomb, uh, largely pre-written works, but kind of compiled for the first time. Some of the works include stories by Harlan Ellison. Not all of them actually are great. Uh, Some of them are pretty bad, but some represent really cool science fiction stories and the type of stories and people's perception of the bombs and odd obsessions that the public may have held at certain times. It's a good way, if you just look at that, that'll give you a good uh, good assessment of how this works. Um, one of the stories that's kind of weird is one about radiation causing super intelligent babies. It's just a weird thing about how people thought radiation would work. And finally, 2011 book called Minutes to Midnight, 12 Essays on Watchmen, edited by Richard Benson. There's a couple different stories. If you like Watchmen, this has a bunch of comic book writers, historians, literature, critics, and they'll get into different elements of Watchmen, whether it be the, the gender politics, whether it's the historical accounts. One in particular by Peter Sanderson, who's a comic book critic and historian. He connects Hiroshima to uh, Dr. Manhattan very clearly, and I think it's a good reflection and more detail than I could offer um, given his knowledge of, of comic books overall. So, Luis, do you have any... Yeah, so in addition to the Atomic Cafe, there are two documentaries that I think are, are worth uh, watching. One is Command and Control, which is about the nuclear incident accident in Arkansas in 1980 that came within a hair's breadth of a of a nuclear detonation of, uh, of an ICBM uh, missile silo. We, we've talked about Command and Control a lot on this podcast. Not The book in particular is really, really good. I have it right over here. But the documentary that came out, I think, last year is fantastic. And uh, the documentary Zero Days about the you know, uh, cyber efforts to uh, derail the uh, Iran nuclear program and how that has sort of boomeranged back into this larger world that we now exist in, in which 
cyber threats confront us from everything from uh, nuclear weaponry to elections. I wish I could recommend Doomsday Clock, this ongoing series. Mm -hmm. I've read the first two. They're not great. Uh, I'm probably not going to continue to read it. Maybe someone listening will tell me that this is wrong and that they should actually look at it because it'll get better. Uh, I don't think I'm going to continue reading. I'm kind of sad about that because I enjoyed Before Watchmen. It's the prequel about Ozymandias and how he became Ozymandias. So it's really what we already know and it just fills in details. I wish that was a good too, but at least I would recommend that. I wouldn't recommend this new one. Luis? Thank you very much. Thank you very much. But this has been really great. And, awesome. Uh, I'm looking forward to uh, 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 hearing more. Excellent. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Supercritical Podcast. If you have any suggestions for future episodes or want to bug us about what we got wrong, there are a couple ways you can contact the show. We have a website, supercriticalpodcast.com. You can contact us through that. Uh, you can also see our Facebook page, facebook.com slash supercriticalpodcast. We're on Twitter at Nuclear Podcast and email supercriticalpodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, this has been Tim Westmeyer and Luis Navarro. And remember, if it's pop culture and radioactive, we are bound to get supercritical about it. Have a good one.